What's going on everybody? My guest today is Big Mel Chansey. I can't say enough good about Mel. He's one of these guys that just carries this light around with him, makes everybody around him happy. Mel is a former president of the Hells Angel Biker Gang. Uh, he ran the Hells Angels in Chicago during their infamous war with the outlaws. We're gonna talk about the fact that Mel had to live most of his life with a target on his back and what that meant about the life that Mel led in Chicago, what led him into the biker gang, his time in prison, what he learned from it. We're gonna talk about Mel's relationship with God and his faith. And then we're gonna talk about the project that Mel and I are doing together with my dear friend, Dwayne Johnson. I'm super proud of this conversation. I love Mel and I'm just enormously grateful that he came on. Mel Chansey is most definitely a real one. Thanks for listening, guys. Mel, uh, did you meet everybody? I met everybody. Met yes. everybody? Yeah, I did. Hey, so fucking Mel Chansey. Uh, Mel Chansey, you know I I I think uh, Mel since since um, you could you can you could ask any of these guys in this real ones team, you know since this thing started, um, I don't think there's been anybody I've talked about as much as as much as you, who who I think you know just really embodies the 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 spirit and 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 the ethos of of um, you know whatever message we're we're really trying to bring. Um, yeah. I, I have to say in full disclosure before we talk, I just I say, brother, I love you, man. I love, I you, love too, you so man. much. You've yeah, been such a uh, a gift to me and my family and in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, you inspire me so much. Um, I never met somebody who uh, carries so much light. You always make me happy. Every time I get a call from you, uh, I, I I I feel joy yeah. and and um, I feel inspired. And and uh, you remind me always about what's important in life. And um, I just I'm, I'm I'm a richer man for it, and, and I, I I cherish this relationship. I, I'm just enormously enormously uh, just 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 grateful, man, that Me you're too, here and bro. that you're in yeah. my life. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, man, in, in in spending this time with you, you know, another thing that 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 we've discussed and that comes up on this show over and over again is, uh, you know, man, you're also you're also somebody uh, that when you talk to anybody. Uh, in the law enforcement community, in, in, in the 1% community, in the, the motorcycle club community, in the criminal community. Yeah. There's also probably nobody that's as respected or, or, or feared as, as, as the man that you were. Mm -hmm. And um, both of these things are true. I talk to people who talk about your light, talk about your ability to inspire, talk about your ability to uplift. And then you talk to, to folks like, like the main man, Lou, who's here with us today, who's also a real one's yeah. uh, guest. George Christie, Nick Kaye, like anybody you know who talks about you, yeah. um, you know you really were the real deal, and it's something that we've 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 talked about a lot. But that only folks that have really been in that valley can really get to that mountaintop, mm -hmm. and and uh, you know you are you are that guy, and um, you know that's uh, that's something I really want to just kind of explore today sure. and and and, yeah. and talk about, you yeah. know, and. Um, the past is the journey where I'm at now, right? I mean, you know, I became that guy that I probably should have never, you know, been in that lifestyle to start with, but I was. I, I you know, I took a look down that street and decided I wanted to run in there, you know. Yep. God protected me for the season I was there, and uh, and that brought me to where I'm at, right? So, you know, as we always talk about sometimes, you know, the, the, the past and the mistakes that I have made and 
the the man that I was back then obviously is 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 cultivated to where I'm at now and there the gratefulness go. I have and everything. So it's you know it's always a blessing for me too. So and so so just tell me like like off the bat, Mel. Like how would you if if somebody if, if somebody would say, hey man, who's Mel Chancy? Like how would you describe yourself? Like how, how would you describe yourself for somebody who didn't know you, never met you before? Um, you know, I would say that I'm a, a, a humble boy as i still call myself right uh my my daughter who is now 37 and i have a 16 year old grandbaby and an eight-year-old grandbaby well my daughter nicknamed me peter pan back in the day when she was young right and she's like dad you're never going to grow up you always got the lost boys around you you know the peter pan story you know and uh so the same thing i'm a grateful humbled guy that was saved by grace you know i made some bad decisions and i didn't come from a family like that i came from a strict catholic family my two older sisters went to Catholic school, you know. I was an altar boy. I was the president of the student council. I was that <laughs> guy, right? And uh, I met the, the motorcycle dudes when I was young, you know, 15 and 16 years happen? old. In a gym. There was a gym in my neighborhood, and you paid uh, $10, I believe, and you got a key. And it was, the, it was the size of your gym in the garage, right? And just the key, you can go anytime. I was in there as a youngster. I loved bodybuilding, flipping the magazines and seeing, you know, the greats, the Lee Haney and the, and the Lee Labradas. And um, I loved the bodybuilding. And there was these three dudes in there that were training in jeans, no shirts, concrete guys and stuff. And they showed me how to train. Like, hey, kid, that ain't right. Do this, do that. And they showed me the old school way of training. Lo and behold, they were members of the Hell's Henchmen, which we were before we, we, we patched over to Hell's Angels in Chicago. And, uh, and I didn't know that for, you know, maybe, you know, close to, you know, eight months, a year later. I didn't know because they came in their vehicles or if they came on their bikes, they didn't, you know, they were training, so they didn't have their patch on. So it's a funny story. I say the same guys that showed me how to train the old school way and, you know, get bodybuilding big um, showed me how to live the motorcycle lifestyle, right? The one percenter lifestyle. And, and, and at that point, like, what, what, what kind, like, how would you describe yourself at that, like a kid going into that gym? What kind of kid were you? You know, bright eyed, bushy tailed, eager to learn. I loved, I wanted to be, He-Man was, uh, uh, the He-Man, you know, cartoon figure was my, you know, I had the blonde hair and I was like, man, I love this, you know? And, uh, I said, you know, I was inspired by that. So I wanted to, you know, take my body to that level. I wanted to be big and, and not, I didn't know I was ever going to become what I became, right? right? I always wanted to get big in the bodybuilding world because I loved it. I loved training my body. I loved watching it grow. I loved the discipline it took to eat and everything that these guys showed me. And I say a funny story is they all wore jeans. You know, most most biker dudes ain't training legs, you know. But <laughs> <laughs> to be a bodybuilder and stuff and to be up on them stages like I wanted to do when I was younger, you know, training legs. So I trained legs and stuff, you know, and I was able to grow and, and stuff. So I was bright eyed, right. To learn from these, from these cats. And then, you know, as, as I found out who they were and then I seen, wow, these guys are, I, I like this part, you know, and what did I, you like about it? Uh, you know, the camaraderie I seen, I liked bikes. I grew up with some dirt bikes and stuff like that. I liked the Harleys and then the camaraderie and the brotherhood that I seen. And then it, they took me down to the clubhouse and, you know, I'm 17, 18 years old and, you know, and, uh, you know, I've started to see what was going on there. And, but I mean, uh, that's not normal, right? I mean, like, what what was it? What was it about you that they saw at seventeen years old to take you down to the clubhouse? Um, you know, I think that it was just that I was eager. I listened to them. I watched them. 
I, I got I got kicked out of school uh, before I was 16. I I socked the principal. I was getting I was getting thrown out. There was a fight in school with some with some different neighborhood people, right? And me being one of them, <clears throat> we got into a fight in there. And uh, I was in the principal's office. You know, he was in the in, in the other. Uh, he was in his office. I was in the waiting room with, and he was with my mom. My mom, an old Italian lady, right? Uh, and uh, you know, raises our family close, very close knit family. So when they got me in the office and stuff, he had, you know, this attitude and he told my mom, you know, you know, we're, we're suspending them. You know, I wish these parents here knew how to raise their kids. And, you know, my mom was just, you know, listening to him and stuff and kind of was mad at me that I was getting in a fight in school and stuff. And I just seen the way he was talking and, and you know, I didn't like the disrespect that he had. And, and I jumped over to the desk and socked them in the nose. Right. And uh then I had to hightail it out of there and run through the neighborhoods and try to get back to my family's home where I lived. But by the time it took me 20 minutes, and by the time I got there, the cops were there waiting for me. <laughs> <laughs> so we went back there and everything, and uh, um, you know, no charges pressed. And my mom signed me out. I said, I don't want to go to school no more. And she said, okay. So she had to sign me out. I wasn't 16, so she signed me out. And I jumped in the family pool we had and just started lounging around in the sun and about a week later, she came with some construction boots, and she said, here, and I go, what's up from Vermont? She goes, you're going to work. You're huh. not going to lay around this house. Yeah. And my uncle had owned a concrete company at the time, and that's what them cats were doing that showed me the gym stuff. They poured concrete. Oh, wow, wow, so wow. So lo and behold, here I go to work with my uncle and the concrete crew, you know, and I stayed there for about a year. Me and my uncle were bumping heads because I was his nephew, so he expected way more out of me. And then we just, and I went to work with, with one of them guys on the crew, and that's what I started doing, pouring concrete. So I was, now I was with one of the guys every day. His name was John. I was with him every day pouring concrete and going to train and going down to the clubhouse. Well, he tells me when I get down there, he goes, hey, man, I know you're uh, 18. You look 30. You got to be 21 to get in the club. Tell these guys you're 21. And I'm like, okay, all right, sounds good, right? So I get down there one night, and they're all having a meeting and stuff, and I'm upstairs. The meeting was downstairs. They call me down in the room. And uh, they said, all right, Mel, you, uh, you want to come around and hang around the club? I said, I do. And the president at the time says, well, how old are you? And I looked around the room, and, man, I just got that, you know, my nuts came up in my stomach, and I was like, man, 18. And they all looked around, <laughs> and they, look, they looked over there at, at, the, at the, another member who was, you know, grooming me too, this guy, Big Al. He's, he's, he's on my arm right here. He got killed. And um, they looked at him, and I go, no, 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 it's not his fault. I said, I told these guys I was 21 because I'm in the bars and everything like that. I said, so I'm, I'm, I apologize here, you know, and they're like, well, you can't come in the club to your 21. I said, I get it, but I'll just continue to hang around and everything like that. So then I, I took a little hiatus for about a year. I was just pouring concrete with them and stuff. And, you know, I, I, I had my daughter at 17. So my daughter was very young. You know, I was with her mother since I was like, I think like 15. I was concentrating on that. Well, now, about a year later, so I was like 19 now, and I went down for a party, and they hadn't seen me in a year or so, and they're like, hey, how you been on the, I'm good, you know? Well, how old are you now? I said, it's only been a year and some change. I'm 19, and they said, man, you're going to age rough. You look older. You want to come in the club? I said, I do. They said, okay, come on, let's make it official. You become an official hangaround, yeah. a prospect, and then you get voted for the you get right? Yeah. yeah, so that's how it happened, and that's what I did, and I was very eager there. You know, when I got into that world, I wanted to learn that world. You know, who knew that world? You know what I mean? And, 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 that, and what I mean about that world, you know, when the, when the motorcycle club started, you know, back in the 40s and 50s and stuff like that, was that brotherhood, right? Guys coming home from the service, the Vietnam stuff, and the brotherhood of everything, uh, the history of the Hells Angels and everything like that, and that brotherhood, that camaraderie is something that, you know, so dear to myself, you, you know, you know how we feel. 
Um, so I, I love that. I love to see that, you know, and that's what I was doing. We were spending time with each other at homes and Christmases and Thanksgiving and Godfather to each other's kids and stuff like that. But in that world comes the nonsense, the violence, the tit for tat with the other clubs and stuff like that, as we say, you know, and, uh, you know, and I was into that part, you know, them cats showed me the violent side of, of the, the lifestyle. And as I say, I got bit by that. It, it just trapped me in. I, I, I got sucked into it like a shark in the water. And I tasted that, that violence and that power and that it's our way or no way kind of mentality and stuff. And uh, I, I, I grew into that, right? And uh, it's like I always said, you know, different seasons in my life, you know, is, uh, and, uh, and, and, and that's how that journey started, you know. I was, and what, did, what, what was your, like, history with violence at that point? Like, you know, I mean, you say you, I mean, most people, there's people, I got in trouble at school all the sure. time. Ain't a fucking chance I'm punching the principal in the face, you know what I mean? Yeah. But they're, like, like clearly, you know, you're, you're built different. You know, like I said, there's one percenters, there's mm-hmm. there's got, and then there's you, right? There's a different, there's a, you're yeah. at sort of a different level. What was your history with it before? What 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 was it that you were so kind of, for lack of a better word, good at being by? Yeah, zero history, right? I grew up with a loving mother and father. My two sisters babied me. I'm the only boy in an Italian family, so you know I was catered to. Hence why I went with so many different women in my life because. The women, I used to tell my mom, you did this to me. You made, you spoiled me, and now I need all this, right? Yeah. So I had no, you know, my little fight in schools and, you know, the playground stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. No history of the violence, but, you know, I, I learned it fast, and I watched it, and I watched how some of these guys came right in, and when it was time to fight and throw hands, there was no question about it. You weren't, you, you know, Chicago. It's the south side, the city of Chicago back in the, 89, 90, 91 era, and it, you just weren't, it was a sock and the guys down on the ground. You were making sure that dude from that other club did not get up to hurt any of the team that we were with, you know? So I learned that. And, there, and there, there's a currency to it, right? I mean, like, what, what, what do you think that is? You know, there, there, there's something about with men that, that, you know, I just know even like with the, with the guys I grew up with, my best friends, it's, it, there's strangely, you know, when you're a young man, there's not that many ways, especially back in the day, to be able to tell your best friends, tell the people that you cared about the most that you love them. And one way to do that is to get their back. And one way to do that is is is, is through violence. I think a lot of mistakes are made. A lot of bad choices are made because of that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the currency of violence and how being violent kind of connected you with these guys and what they saw in you? And can you talk about maybe your first first sort of opportunity to do that yeah or, or one that you remember yeah, sure so we were we were at at odds with another motorcycle club in the city and uh and it was it was before the outlaw this uh war started and the skirmish started you know and um you know as i said before you know it was like playground stuff but it was beating with you know baseball bats ball peen hammers going into bars looking for these guys i'm coming in looking for us that type of violence. We used to call them the hunts, right? And, you know, all right, let's go out tonight and do a hunt and see who's out. And, you know, we were, you know, having that, that, that um, turmoil with that other club, you know. And I was out every night that I could be out with the guys, you know, when I was a prospect for the, for the henchmen at the time. I was staying out till 4, 5 o'clock in the morning, going home, packing my lunch and getting on a construction site at seven in the morning, right? The whole time I was prospecting, you know, that's the life I was living. And, uh, 
you know, I didn't, I, I was working the normal job. It wasn't until later I, and when I seen the game of how I could make some money without working, you know, that I became in that. But uh, that's what I was doing. I was going to work, being that guy all through the, the, the late night hours and then going on and pouring concrete all day. And then as soon as I was done, I would go to the gym and train because that was my passion, right? I did not miss days at the gym. I loved the gym. I wanted to train. I loved the feeling of it. And then I'd go home and get a little sleep and maybe 10, 10.30 at nighttime, the witching hour, we would say, hey, we get a call or get a page back in the day, right? The yeah. pagers, and let's go. There's a few guys here. There's a few guys here. Let's go. You know, I still lived with my ex, Jenny, and my daughter, Danielle. We had an apartment, right? And, you know, I was so, as you know, how much of a family man I am, I, I, was, I had to shelter that. I could not bring them into this world. I could not do it. The, the, the girl that I was with, Jenny, that I, you know, was with for years, she didn't understand that world, nor I didn't want her to. So I sheltered them. I kept everything away from them because I didn't know what, where it was going to take us with all this, right? So it was a balancing act for me, you know, and I learned that young, you know, and it kind of groomed me before the big events came with, you know, with the Hells Angels and the Outlaws in the Midwest there, which, which got very serious, right? So um, I guess I was getting my Ph.D. in all that mm. on-the-job training, you know, so. was there anything? Was there any sort of thing? I mean, you're prospecting. Was there anything that went down that like really? What was the first thing that that kind of caught the attention of these older guys? I mean, I, I don't know. Were you whether you're trying to fit in with them? Were you trying to impress them? Were you trying to show love to them? Show fidelity and loyalty to mm -hmm. them? Was there was there one event? Was there one thing where they said, okay, this guy. He's 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 down for it, or was it just just generally like yeah, that? Yeah, no, I think there were the first incident that I that I remember, you know, to starting it off where where they seen me, you know, is when I we walked into a bar. I think there was about five or six of us, and uh, there was about a dozen of of the other club guys in there. This is before the outlaws, the and uh, and it was on right, and we were outnumbered, and I was happened to be outside, and I came running in and got right in the mix of stuff and. You know, a lot of guys on top of us. I remember at one point I was on the ground and I had a, a bar stool and I was holding on to it over my head so they weren't kicking me in the head at least because yeah. they were getting rib shots in. Yeah. And we were just all jamming, you know. And, yeah. and the, the guys seen that and seen yeah. I was right there and wasn't running because the odds were different, you know. It's easy to, uh, when the odds are in your favor, it's easy to stand there. But when they're not, you know, it takes somebody that's going to say, hey, I'm, I got your back no yeah. matter what. And I was that. And I was eager and I looked up to these guys. And they became family. Yeah. And, and that's how it started. And, you know, that little skirmish that I talk about, you know, I guess was grooming me for the next level that nobody was ready for. I don't think anybody, I'm not saying anybody, there's all different people in life, right, as we know, bro. But, you know, you're coming into a motorcycle club, you love the brotherhood, the camaraderie. I don't think everybody, anybody woke up in the morning and said, I can't wait to blow this building up today or I can't wait to shoot this dude off the motorcycle on the highway. I mean, there's a few people that probably enjoy that, but for the most part, it, it just kind of comes with the territory and you have to be, you know, I, I would have never thought I'd be in that position at that young age. If you would have told me at 16, hey, in 10 more years, you're going to be in the middle of a, something that's going to be on the ganglands, I would have been like, what are you talking about? You know, none of us were even on that page, right? So, you know, kind of groomed in there naturally, so to say. And are there guys, I mean, are there guys that, that, that you think, I mean, you, you, you've seen guys that are just sort of there for, for the brotherhood and the Fidel. They, they, they want to wear the jacket. They want to, like, hang out. They want to be in the clubhouse. But they're, they're not the guy who's going to run in when, when, when you're being outnumbered. You come across those guys as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you're showing yeah. that you're not that guy. Right. Right? 
Yeah. Because it seems like, you know, and look, man, I know, I know so much about your story and we're friends, you yeah. know? So like, I've heard a lot of these stories, but one sort of recurring theme with you just always seems it's always somebody did something that you felt was unjust. Somebody hurt somebody that you love. Somebody put their hands on a woman. And so you go and you react, right? Yeah. yeah what, what, what was, um, I mean, th- this club now is starting to become your family. Mm-hmm. Was there like one inciting incident that then ratcheted up to, to, to another level? Yeah, and, and, and that became, so we, so in 1994, we switched from, we switched from the Hell's Henchmen to the, we became Hell's Angels, right? We were talking to, to the Hell's Angels, and one of the henchmen was in, was in the penitentiary with an angel out of Minnesota, and we, he, they had a good relationship with each other, and the Hell's Angels at the time were never in the Midwest. It was Minnesota, and then, you know, uh, uh, nothing in the Midwest, and then it was Ohio, so there was that big gap, of no hell's angels right there, you know, and we were the opportunity, right? The hell's henchmen, you know, three chapters, guys that were, you know, about it and stuff like that. So once we decided that we were going to become hell's angels, well, that changed the game in the history of Chicago because the outlaws, that was their hometown. That was their, 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 their chapter. The, the Chicago chapter was, you know, on the map. You How know? does that decision get made? Um, all of us took it to a vote. There were some older guys in the club that were Hell's henchmen at the time that, you know, knew that they didn't want to take that next step and we couldn't blame them. You know, at the time I was, you know, 22, 23 years old and uh, these guys were, you know, 40s and 50s and they're thinking, okay, once we make this decision to become Hell's Angels, it's it's going to turn the city upside down here. The outlaws are not going to be happy with this and, you know, we don't know what's coming, but we knew they weren't going to be happy. So some guys split. We gave them the opportunity. We said, you can't keep the club. The Hell's Henchman has to fold and become Hell's Angels. You can't keep the club, you know. So guys left. The guys that stayed made the decision to stay. And we kind of buckled up for the ride because the outlaws told us there's nothing more for us to talk about. It's on, <laughs> you know, mortal enemies at the time. How did they send you that message? We were we sat with them at a table. They had called, you know, the the, the at the time that the president was a, a guy that was – the Hell's Henchman president for probably 15 years. And uh, they hit him up and five of us went to meet five of them at a restaurant. And they asked if the rumor was true. And we said, yeah, we're doing it. We're, we're going to become Hell's Angels. And uh, they said, okay, there's nothing more for us to talk about. See you when we see you. And I knew right then and there at when them cats left that table, it, it was going to get serious. So what, and then what is that? So what's like, once you leave that table, what's the conversation? Like, what, what, what is that for you? Like, is there any part of you like, fuck, it's, it's, it's on now? Or yeah. are you like, bring whatever comes? And I'm super young at the time. And these cats are, you know, 10, 12, 15 years older than me that just, you know, on the outlaw side too. And serious cats, right? We, the outlaws had a very, very tough reputation. These guys weren't, uh, <laughs> pushovers by any means you know they had a very hardcore crew and in these five cats that came from their team were the hardcore dudes and i looked in looked in their eyes and seen it you know and uh when we were leaving and i said well and we we kind of knew the outcome we were going to get yeah we knew nothing was going to happen at the time we were in a restaurant we picked you know we all picked a restaurant where it was you know neutral and uh we were just you know going home saying well boys now we, we got to see what's going to happen here you know we didn't we weren't taking anything to them. They were not happy with what we were doing. So we were kind of like sitting back and seeing how it was going to go. And things escalated very fast, very fast. Um, um, the beating started. 
the bar room stuff, catching a couple of guys in the bars. They jumped a few of our guys. We returned the favor, and it started that way. And, um, and then the, it's like they took a step up with the violence, and we had to try to take the step up to do it, right? There's no playbook, right? It's nothing you're reading from. It's like you have to be Johnny on the spot and come, you know, take what comes your way. And that's how we were all doing it, right? None of us really knew anything. I mean, when they put the bomb on our clubhouse in 1994, that was the third largest bomb to this day. It was like the Oklahoma uh, McVeigh. It was um, uh, the Trades Towers, you know, in, in New York. And this was the third largest bomb detonated in the United States to this day. And, uh, was, you know, we didn't know about bombs. I could barely put the, the battery in my pager. <laughs> you know, we did, I didn't put, you know, all I did with motorcycles, I put the gas in. How did that go? To, how did the bomb go? To, did, did the bomb, what happened? What, what was the story with that? So they um, put 100 pounds of C4 in a car, shaped it and everything like that, drove it up. Uh, our clubhouse was on a, on a, in a crazy, it was called Grand Avenue. And it was a very busy street. And it was about 5 o'clock, you know, in a, in a weekday afternoon. It was a Tuesday, Wednesday or something like that. Middle of the week, traffic going by and everything. And uh, they, built, they built the bomb in the trunk of this car. And one of their members who, you know, got recoded, went to prison. It's all, you know, this is all gangland stuff and every, you know, knowledgeable. He drove the car and, and, and blocked the front door of the clubhouse because they thought people were in the clubhouse because there was some cars out in front. There was a member from Minnesota with his girl visiting, but they were sightseeing at the time. And that thing, he got out of the car. The car picked him up, you can see from the cameras, and he barely got out of view of the cameras, you know, block or so away, and that thing detonated. And by the grace of God, two minutes before that, a city bus went by filled with people, Holy CTA shit. bus. You see a cop car goes by real slow, and the cop looks at the door, and he goes, oh, that's probably the Angels. You know, we were in that neighborhood. The henchmen had been there since the 60s. Oh, that's probably the Angels doing, moving something. I mean, if he would have stopped and got out, nobody would have lived through this. So that bomb goes off. You know, it blasts down, and it blew a five, six, seven-foot hole in the ground. They found the VIN number a mile away, right, Holy when fuck. the ATF gets in there and does, you know, does their investigation. Hits the front door, big steel front door, blows it out of the back of the of the building, through it, you know, a big building, you know, old Chicago building, three levels. The blast goes across the street. There's a house that's siding, like aluminum siding house. By the grace of God, nobody's in the house. It just rips the house apart. Nobody gets hurt. Knocks all the lights out on, on off or for blocks around. I mean, just turmoil, right? So I was sitting at home, and I get a phone call and from one of my friends, and he goes, hey, bro, I, I think your clubhouse is on the news. And I go, what? He goes, turn on the news. I go, what channel? He goes, any of them. <laughs> and I turn on the news, and I look, and I'm just seeing the, the, the city, the, the, the block, but with no lights, the, the car pieces, infernos on the streets. And I think we've seen it in the sizzle reel of that, you know, where the, the, the guy was out there from the news and stuff like that. And I said, yeah, that's our clubhouse, you know. So we all got got on the phone with each other, and we met a, a few blocks away. There was a gas station, and we came down to the gas station and stuff. And it was just, it, it, it was so crowded. It was like if you were there signing autographs, the place was just jammed with people because they had everything shut off. Nobody could get near it, right? So we were all in the gas station. And we're like, man, what happened here, right? And the neighbors are like, man, an explosion went off on Grand Avenue, right? 
And we're like, okay. So um, as I'm standing there talking to the fellas, I hear my name get called. Hey, Mel. And I look around, and it's it's a couple ATF guys, a couple guys that I already knew who they were. And they said, hey, man, come here. We want to talk to you. I said, okay. They go, uh, what's going on here? I go, I have no idea, man. I just seen it on the news, you know. <clears throat> they said, well, who are you thinking? I go, I don't, I don't have no idea. Your guess is as good as mine, right? Uh, you knew exactly who uh, it was. I kind of figured it was yeah, them. Had you wanted to, to be, yeah, We didn't have anybody that, you know, that was could, could do that at that capacity that we knew besides some guys. So I see, he goes, it's a mess down there, man. He goes, it's, it's a disaster. I said, anybody hurt? He goes, no, nobody hurt. Nobody was in the building. <clears throat> I find out later from, you know, from Lou and the ATF guys, you know, with a blast like that, if anybody was in that building, it, it would have just ripped their eardrums out. They would have been bleeding internally just from the concussion, right? Mm. Not the blast, the concussion and stuff like that. And I said, okay, cool. I said, uh, can I see the place? And he says, yeah, if you talk to me. I said, yeah, let's go. Let's walk and talk, you know. Uh, we think it was the outlaws. I go, well, guys, I don't know. I was at home. I wasn't here when somebody, you know, did this, right? And uh, I seen the building. I seen the street. And I was like, it looked like Beirut when I used to watch the old Because at this point, you're not inter- you're only interested at one kind of justice at this. Like, you know exactly what you're like. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What's that feeling? Yeah, that feeling was like, like so when I got back after seeing the building, and the and the and the Fed said, okay, we're seizing this now. This is ours. We're having people flying from Washington. This is a big deal. It's uh, we'll let you know when what's going to happen. But we were taking over this 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 property, right? And I said, okay, you know, they, they were out there. And the guys, we had guys. It was our job as members to make sure we were watching the building too, because they cleared the street up. Grand Avenue opened, and we had guys that had to sit out there in shifts, ten hour shifts and stuff, to make sure because there was gaping holes in this building. But Every day, people were flying in from Washington and, you know, going through the place and making sure, you know, they wanted to, you know, do all their investigation and stuff. And at the time, you know, funny old saying is I, I used to say, man, tie your shoes up, boys. It's getting it's going to get crazy here. Right. And, uh, you know, we were doing that tit for tat thing, you know, and like I said, none of us knew that game. So it became from it was a personal level fighting, running in each other's bars, doing stuff like that, you know to now, wow, this thing just happened and turned the game around with the bombing stuff, right? And that was the first of a few that happened, you know. Then, you know, as you know, they started doing it to the vehicles. And we had no idea, you know. We all had remote starts because after this bombing, we were like, okay, man, we got to check our houses, check our cars. I had a Corvette at the time, remote starting it and stuff. And one of our, one of the Hells Angels from Rockford, I had a pickup truck, and he, he had a remote start on it. He started it, and everything was good, and he got in a truck, and he put it in reverse. Well, they had tied, they set the device up, and they tied something to the yoke of the trans. So when the trans spun, it detonated that thing, and it blew him up in the vehicle. Legs pumping blood, veins hanging out. He died once or twice on the way to the hospital. He revived them and brought him back. He lived, but he went through a horrible process of that. He blew, you know, blowing him up. We had no clue. Like, man, these guys are, you know, using bombs and we, we got remote starts and, you know, we, we don't know how to do that. So we had to figure out a way to do that and to get back. You know, it was, you know, it was a way that we had to get back into that scene. We didn't know. We were still trying to run in the bars and find them as they were finding us and doing the old hand to hand stuff. Right. So we learned that. Right. And uh, then, you know, they put a bomb on their clubhouse in the city. But after them bombing started. So. Is let me go back a little bit. After the the truck with Roger, then they put another bomb on a on a, a member's from Rockford's truck. He found it. 
he's seen it under there. He went under there with the with the mirror, and he's seen the, the, the bomb. He calls the police. The police call in the ATF, the bomb squad. They couldn't detonate it, so they built a, a you know all their stuff around it, you know their wall around it and everything, and shot it with a water cannon, and had to blow the truck up because they couldn't undetonate the wow. bomb. So they you know built around and stuff. And um, so, you know, like we've seen in, with Bayless talking, you got a bombings and stuff. But when you have two bombings on one day, that's something that they've never seen before. And then after, you know, we did their clubhouse, then that was the full court press. That's when the government came in and said, hey, no more of this. Like the violence on violence, biker violence on biker violence, they don't like, but it's, it's, it's passable. But when you start Beirut in the city, they're going to come with the full court press, right? And uh, and at the time, Janet Reno was the U.S. Attorney General, the United States Attorney General and stuff. And, you know, we all know she was no nonsense. And she put a team and she said, both sides, get both sides, you know. And that's how the RICO investigation started. So, you know, that kind of put the city <laughs> on edge and stuff, you know. But, the, I mean, during this time, you know, people are getting killed. I mean, pe- 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 yeah. people are dying yeah. and, and this yeah. will... But it, what and now, I mean, this skipped. You're you're the president of the the club at this point, right? Like, yeah, and I want to I want to know about that. But but what is what is living in that environment like? Like day to day. I mean, is it, 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 it? Are you just fueled by anger? Or is there fear? Like what's going what's going through your head? And what and, and are you seeing it? How do you rally the guys around you? And 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 do you realize now you're a part of something? that maybe you never wanted to be a part of or, yeah. or but it's too late like how yeah. what, what's the what's the emotion behind that all of the emotions that you could think about the, from fear to anger to what what's happening here to you know just getting thrown in the mix i became the president the the the, I, the president that was there for a long time said listen i'm older things are moving fast you're the young guy <laughs> everybody knows you from around the, the different chapters and stuff like that it's time, you know, and he, and I said, well, you're going to have to school me here a little bit more, you know, show me the ways of, of how to be, you know, run the ship here. And he did. And, uh, and, you know, of course I jumped right into it. So now I'm the president at the height of 94 when this all starts kicking off and stuff. And, uh, knowing that we got to keep our guys safe too. You know, I show everybody, you know, I got the tombstones on my arms from the brothers that got killed in that war. And, you know, when you see, <clears throat> A, a brother that you're tight with, and now he's laying in a casket, and I'm watching his 16-year-old daughter, before we close the casket, lay herself over the casket, and she's rubbing her father's hair for the last time. Boy, that hits different. You know, I remember standing at the casket. A couple of the, the, the brothers were with me, and we were getting ready to put his patch over him before we shut the casket, right? And, and his daughter jumped in there and was doing that, saying goodbye to her dad, and I remember the tears coming from my eyes thinking, w- we did this. This was our decisions that made this all happen here. We're, we're all responsible for this, right? And uh, how do you get out of it, though? How do you just say time out into something like that? You know, them cats weren't wanting hair time out, so you just have to go with the flow, right? And be a part of the environment that got created around you. You know, like I said, nobody got up that morning and planned all this, right? We were like, here we are. We like looking back, you know? Um, so oh, a ton of emotions. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't just walk into a gym and start training without having a team in there watching them front doors because guess who the target became? Me. Because they were like, okay, here's this young dude out there that's a nuisance to us. We're we're still going in and getting each other in bars, and we had a young crew, and we were jacked up, and we we adapted to the violence, and, you know, they were violent cats themselves. 
So a lot of emotions, you know, and at the same time, now I'm not with Danielle's mother no more because I said, it's time. I, you guys got to go back and live with your mother and I can't have you guys around. And, you know, of course, in that environment, you know, a lot of women are around, right? And I've had a lot. And, you know, I was with a few different girls, and but I, I sheltered them from it. You know, my personal life and the club life had to be very different. A lot of guys don't do it that way. There's a lot of guys in the club and they, their personal life and the club life coexist. They bring their girls around, their wives around and stuff like that. I wasn't that guy. I couldn't do it. There was a different. I never wanted to, like the girls would say, are, are, are we going to go on your bike tonight? No. I'm not taking you on my bike tonight. I'm not using you as a bulletproof vest. And I'm gonna, it's, this is my world, right? I'll take you tomorrow for ice cream or something. We'll go throw darts somewhere. But tonight, you, you know, you don't, you're not getting into this world. So, and my personal friends that were trying to come into the club, and I used to tell them, this ain't for you guys, you know what I mean? And they're like, well, you're doing it. And I'm like, well, you see all the fun stuff. You see when we're out in bars around our bikes and the chicks and the, the red carpet treatment and all that. But, uh, you know, you ain't experiencing the, you know, when, when our brother's daughter is rubbing his hair and stuff that changed yeah. the game. Right. So, you know, it was a lot of emotions that I was going through at that young age, becoming that guy. I'm in gym, in the gyms and I have a security team watching for why I'm training and stuff like that. And, you know, then at nighttime we're running around doing what we're doing that, the stuff that would, everybody was seeing on TV of, of the war and the bombings and the Hells Angels and Outlaws, they were getting a glimpse of a world they didn't know, right? So when I would go downtown to the big restaurants and stuff, next thing I know, people are like, hey, Mel, how you doing? Come on in. Let me sit you at a table here. And I'm like, wow, what's going on here? You know, they, that, that, that gangster f celebrity figure kind of created itself on its own, right? And... You know, I was always this type of guy. I was always thank you and please. I was raised by my family like that, right? So I was always that that gentleman with manners and stuff with the flip side of we had to take care of business when we had to do it, right? So all the, you know, all the old friends that you hear and are like, man, Mel was holding our kids. We would leave Mel with our kids back in the day. But he had another side to him, you know, and that was the way for me to do it. Everybody didn't do it that way. But I had to do it that way. I couldn't, you know, I was like losing me, if that makes sense. I was losing Mel. My nickname was Road. And I, that persona was growing on its own. You know what I mean? You feel me there? It was like, I, it wasn't everything that I was doing, but it was, you know, the, the TV made it kind of glamorous to people. Wow. I remember one time I got my house raided, one of many. And uh, I, about two days later, I got out on a bond and I'm in a restaurant and we're eating and the TV, the news comes on and they're still showing it from two days later. There's my picture on TV and talking about the Hells Angel Outlaw War and the turf that's going on and everything like that. And the people in the restaurant are looking over at me and I'm eating. And I'm, next thing I know, they're coming over. Hey, Mel, how you doing, man? Nice to meet you. And in these, you know, these uh, uppity downtown restaurants, right? <laughs> and uh, what do you so, think that is, man? What, what do you think that is? Like, what, 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 what do you think that's about? Because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah, I think, you know, people didn't really know that world. And it seemed like the mobsters, right? The gangster world, you know. It's, uh, you know, it's with John Gotti when he was out. And, you know, he, he became that celebrity figure, right? Yeah. You know, and people, they look at that and they say, wow, this is something they're not doing. Or, right. you, know, you know, wouldn't adventure into. It's like foreign. So when they see that, it's, you know, the gentleman gangster, right? Everybody loved me as Mel. He's a good guy, man. We leave our man. You never, you never hear Mel swear in front of everybody. He's very, very respectful to my wife. That's how I am now, right? You know, and uh, 
but they knew what the TV was showing them and what happened was happening with the violence. So I think people are enthralled with what they don't understand and they see it. You know, I'm not sure they wanted me to date their daughters, but they were liking me in the in the public figure. And that persona grew on its own without me knowing it. It was nothing I was trying to do. I wasn't trying to walk around like I'm because I knew that them dudes were trying to knock my head off my shoulders. I had a, every morning I got up and every night I slept. I mean, there was, nobody probably had more weapons around them than me. I, in the shower, I was the, I was always used to say, I'm not getting hit in the face with a ball peen hammer. They're not walking through the door at ax handles and hitting me. If that's what's coming up, it's going to be a different scenario, right? We're going to go. I'm not doing that, you know? So, um, it just, it just, and that grew from there, John, you know? During, during that time, was there anybody, like during the, during, during the height of that, was there anybody that you looked at over on the other side that, uh, that you respected or that you respected and admired or that you thought was a good, that, that, that you thought was solid? solid? Yeah, yeah, and it's funny because after we put these differences aside, I believe it was 97, and we sat down, and uh, they had just got the RICO indictment. I think it was the, the end of 97, the, the, the feds RICO'd. Think about eight or ten outlaws for all these predicate acts that was going on. Jan Arino said, enough, get them. They had that bombing thing. The guy that uh, did the bombing, they caught him. You know, he started talking to the government. So they were putting the pieces of the puzzle together for the RICO, right? Um, so when we sat down with them guys and uh, got to talk to them, and uh, I liked the fellow. I liked the, the few guys that were doing the talks for them. I knew them from Chicago. I knew who they were. They were older than me. They knew who I were. But we never had a chance to meet each other out before this conflict went on, right? And uh, then when we met and sat down, we're all the same people, right? The love of the motorcycle stuff, the brotherhood, you know. I'm not sure too many of them guys got up in the morning and said, let's go get this war crazy. It just started, right? It's just something that happened. So I did get along with them guys from 97 when we started that truce thing. And I went to prison very shortly after that, like 98 or the end of 98 or somewhere in there. So... I was part of that team that sat down that, let's say, let's do this truce. We kind of had some rules for each other, what what we were going to do. Let's practice the good neighbor, good neighbor uh, policy. And it started from there. And then, you know, I was in contact with them. They were in contact with me. Hey, this happened in South Bend. Okay, I'm going to call my South Bend guys up and make sure that this ain't happening no more. No staring each other down when we're there. None of that derogatory stuff. I would call them up, hey, we heard this is going on. No, that's not going on. So we had that report. Getting along with each other, great, you know, two same kind of cats, you know what I mean? So I did I did respect them guys. And as I always tell the story, respectfully on their part, some bad cats right there. We weren't the we weren't the dudes running through Chicago beating our chest like we're the baddest cats in the land. Not at all. Not at all. You know, it it we were just trying to um when in Rome, <laughs> do you know what I mean? That old saying, like, we didn't know. How, there wasn't a game plan. There wasn't a book that we opened up and said, oh, this is the next step. Oh, wow, so they just shot so-and-so. We're going to go shoot their dude, you know? So um, I did I did respect. And there's a lot of guys that I still talk to from the outlaws, you know, that are still in the club and out of the club, and they know I'm gone since 2004, a long time. Everybody knows my story. I don't even ride a motorcycle no more, so they know I'm, I'm exited that lifestyle 100%. Well, Mo, for, for, you know, one thing I know about you too is like a lot of this, a lot of this violence, y- you didn't, you didn't pass off to other people. There, there, there were times where you could have done that as the president, right? Mm-hmm. But there's something, I mean, one thing that everybody says about you 
they talk about discipline, they talk about code, and they talk about ethics. <clears throat> and that's always been a truth with you, right? Like when yeah. it came down to do the violence, you, you weren't afraid to do it yourself. You, you were very comfortable doing it with yourself, but even more so than passing it on to someone else. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, I never wanted to be that guy, bro, that was like, hey, you know, this, this is what we're going to go do. Go do it. You know, I, I wanted to be there. This, we were a brotherhood, right? So if one hurt, we all hurt. If a guy got jumped in a bar on Monday and he's hurting, you can trust and believe we're going to go rectify that by Tuesday. So that's how we were, you know, and that's how I was. And I stood by that. So, and plus I was young, John, you know, and I didn't do any drugs back in the day. I took steroids and I drank whiskey. Horrible combination. <laughs> <laughs> at 24 years old, right? Let's be honest, right? What's that? Can you describe Mel, a 24-year-old Mel on steroids and whiskey? Yeah, so, you know, the, and in the middle of this violent conflict, right? So that just fueled me. You know, I'm taking the, taking the gear, the different steroids and hormones as, as, as I'm training. And everybody know, I mean, I trained for two hours every day. That was my zen. That was my way to train. It got me out of that world. It got me into myself and, you know, disciplined and eaten and everything. So, you know, and then, you know, I'm going out at nighttime, living the one percenter life, drinking some, you know, I like the Jack Daniels. So you put the fire water in me <laughs> and we're in a situation, you know, if we're out, I was never the guy that, you know, you know how you get some guys that drink and then they're out in bars and then they want to just go cause nonsense. That wasn't me at all. I, I got to give, I give all the credit to my mother and father, the way they raised me through my Lord and Savior. But my mother and father raised me to be that respectful dude. And that's the way I was. I didn't get nobody else's business. But when I was out and had some whiskey in me and hormoned up and stuff, if something didn't go right, I was the first one to to be in there. You know, I was that aggressor. We had that, that mentality. And a lot of the younger guys in the club, I think I was the, I, I was, I don't think I was the youngest guy in the club, the youngest president at that time. Um, and we had young guys, you know, that were, you know, gym guys hitting the bags and stuff. There was no MMA back in that day. So we had some street guys that were, you know, tough guys. And we got into the violence, you know, and said, it's like we tasted that, that blood in that violent way. And we got enthralled with it. So, you know, that's, uh, that's what I like to say is doing the hormones and drinking the whiskey and 24 years old. And I'm, I'm, I'm the president of the Chicago crew. You know, all that was just fueling the fire. And my day, once I was done training at the gym and whatever house I bounced around to, because I had a, four girls spread out through different parts of the city that I had homes with. And when the evening time came, that was the time that we would either, you know, we're going out to have some fun, but we were always had to be alert. And we were always waiting for them pagers to go off and say, here's, here's some guys here. Here's some guys here in a bar. You know, we were always And that's on drop that. everything. We found some of those guys. Let's go get them. Let's go get them. At, at any moment. At any moment. So you're living a lot. You got four fucking girlfriends, right? Who they, Do they know about each other? Three of them know about each other. One of them that I was with for about six, seven years at this time yeah. didn't. Right. And, and, and her name was Nancy. And that was my girl at the time mm -hmm. of girls. I, the other three were. Right. I was with one for like. Four or five years, one for two, three years, and, and, and one for like two years. But Nancy was the one that I didn't. She just figured I was traveling all over, running the club, the whole nine yards. The other three knew about each other and Nancy. And Nancy. And I told them, I'm never leaving Nancy. Right. That's like my, you know, but I love you girls. Sure. As weird as it sounds. For, no, no, I know, get it. I, I, I guess what I'm saying is that for, for like any fucking, you know, you know, guy who works at Best Buy, 
having four girlfriends would be like enormously stressful, right? <laughs> like that's enough to like fucking be stressful, right? But you also everywhere you does everywhere you go at that time, are you worried about somebody might shoot you or kill? Like you, you, there's definitely a target on your back, right? One hundred percent. And at yeah. any second, you could get a page that says you've got to go hurt, maim, or potentially kill For somebody, sure. right? For at any sure. at, at any, any moment, at any time. So so what is like that? What is like living in that? And I'm sure, I'm sure, fucking the, the joy and the 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 the, um, the 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 fun and the exuberance that must be, you know, level ten. But like, yeah. what is the stress? Like, what is like? How does that manifest itself? Yeah, you know, at the time I didn't see the stress. You and you're living in it, right? It wasn't until I went to prison that first time, which we'll get into, is when I like look back. You know, it's like it's like the old saying. You're so deep in the forest, you can't see the trees. Yeah, that's how it was with me. It just was became a everyday part of life. Check your vehicle. We're going to the gym. Check your vehicle. Re, 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 you know, uh, um, repetitive and stuff like that. You know, stress levels are there. But I'm young at the time, right? And I'm bouncing around, and I'm coming to California, and I'm going to New York, and I'm doing all my stuff. You know, and with running, you know, being the president, I'm out here for meetings. I'm on the East Coast for meetings and stuff. Going back home and knowing that I have, I'm taking charge. This is my team here, and right, and everybody's relying on me around the country. Like to, <clears throat> the Midwest now was up for for grabs now, and who's going to be the winner? So a le- in the one percenter world, the spotlight was on Chicago. The spotlight was on me. Probably their presidents too. I'm sure, right from their own nation and stuff. Like what's happening there? Get this under control, you know. And you know that's how it was all where. So. I had that, and in between, I was, you know, trying to have a little fun and hitting the strip clubs and still doing the brotherhood stuff on the motorcycles, but it got so kind of crazy for a while. You know, one summer, we kind of put the motor, laid the motorcycles down a little bit. We'd go on runs into anniversary parties and different chapters and stuff, but when it came to bouncing around on motorcycles, you know, guys were getting shot off them. Not our guys, their guys. You know, they were on their motorcycles, and a couple of their guys got shot off the motorcycles, right? So... I said, boys, remember when we were kids and we hung our 10 speeds up on, in the garage, upside down, put the bikes away. It's time to get busy here, man. And uh, we're not going to we're not going to uh, have the joys of running around here like this. We're in a war. You know, it's a real deal, man. We're closing the caskets here on brothers here. So, you know, the stress level was there, but I didn't fully understand it at the time because I'm young. I don't have a career no more. I don't have a job. I'm making illegal money. I don't have to go to work. Have you know the vets, the bikes, different homes, the girls, everywhere I flew, I was the young guy built halfway, halfway okay looking. I would get girls when I went, so it, it was a continual loop for me to to do this, to do this constantly, you know. So it wasn't until I went to prison and I got a, a chance to step out to where I said to myself, "What it, what is going on here? <laughs> what am I doing? Right. You know what? It, you know not only me. What are we all doing? You know?" And I just that's when I said to myself, "I just." It's not the life that I was living. I, I couldn't see my mother. My mother was four foot tall Italian lady that, you know, we didn't even let her come to see me in prison for a while because she couldn't stop crying. Mm. It broke my heart. Mm. You know what I mean? My daughter was young. Uh, my father, who was, you know, my pride and joy in my life, who raised me, was my baseball coach at every time I went to another level. You know, you imagine I see how the way you are with the boys, right, with Henry and Bill and how you are. And that's how my dad was. Come home from work, grab the balls. Let's go. I'm pitching. I'm doing this, you know, and they just, you know, and listen, my mom and dad and my sisters, my family house was the house to go to with the pool and the barbecue and stuff. 
they loved the fellows. They loved all the guys in the club. My mom, get in here, eat. I got a whole, you know, Italian family. Get in here and eat. And then we'd leave and we'd put the vest on, the patch on, and my mom would have the rosary in her hand mm. and just shaking her head. Like, they, they, she didn't like the club, but she liked the fellows. Sure. When I was in prison, the fellows were over at the house. I'd call to talk to my mom and dad. Hold on, I'm pass the phone around. What are you guys doing? Ah, mom's feeding us. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, yeah. you know. So, you know, going to prison and seeing that and getting, you know, if I didn't go to prison, if I, I said that was God's time out for me. Like, hey, man, go sit in the corner for a minute. Think about what you're doing. And I did. And I was like, man, I can't can't do this lifestyle no more. I can't do this to my mother and father. We started letting my mom come and see me. I was in a state prison in Illinois, so I was about two hours away. And my mom would come and see me, and she'd cry, and I would just hug her, you know, and you're not really supposed to have any contact, but the guards, it's my mother, you know, she'd sit next to me, and I'd hug her. And I'd say, a couple years, Mom, I'm coming home, and I said, I'm not, I'm not leaving again. I'm staying with you. We're gonna raise, I'm going to raise Danielle and be that father and be there and be a family guy that you guys instilled in me and uh, I, I'm, I can't do this no more. Well, the feds indicted me when I was in the state prison. They, they were holding a charge on me, and they indicted me. I had to go give them. Uh, they, gave me, they gave me 18 months, I think, on it. I did uh, 13 or 14. And uh, so I had to go right to a federal prison. And when I came home from that federal time, 2000 and the end of 2000, 2001, um, I had a thing called non-association where I couldn't talk to anybody in clubs. If I walked into a, a bar and they were there, I had to leave. I walked in a grocery store. I could not get pictures with him. I had a rough parole officer, and she's like, I, if, if I catch you around one talking to one, I'm sending you back. So it was very, they were very strict on me. And like you heard from Lou, everybody had a target on me because now I'm not Ricoed yet. I went to prison the first time on my own stuff, on yeah. my outside gig, as you, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and then the feds hit me on this mail fraud thing. So th they didn't get me yeah. <laughs> on the RICO like they wanted to. Like, they, you know, they got the outlaws and stuff. And, you know, I used to tell the, the guys in the club, the angels, like, hey, man, them guys got RICO'd. We're next. Don't think they like us. <laughs> right. And they don't like just them. This right. is a joint decision here, right? right? right. They're going to build a RICO on us, and the predicate acts are us, what we're doing. Right. You know, that's what RICO consists of, the predicate acts you're doing. Shooting on the highway, blowing up a building beating in the, in the, in the bars, you know? Yeah. And, um, so when I came home, I couldn't be around them. I had three years of non-association and I, I, I went downtown into the city and I started running these nightclubs. My friend owns with the security, putting the security teams together and living my life with my family, <clears throat> you know? And that's when I made that decision that I'm hanging it up. You know, mm -hmm. I got in the club in 90, let's see, 16, 17, 80, 80, in 89 at 20. And, and, and got out and, and, and got out and quit in 2004. You know, mm -hmm. I made that decision and I told the fellas, I can't do it no more. I can't put my mother and father through this. I can't just come back in the club and be a normal member, right? Now, in, in the 2000s, after I'm home from prison, the, the skirmishes started between the outlaws and angels again. It only lasted a couple of years where everybody was cool. And then the egos get in the way and the territory gets in the way and all that stuff. And, and it's who's the big dog on the block mentality, right? So as I'm on non-association, little things are happening. The outlaws are calling me up, and I said, I can't get involved in this. Uh, we can't. That president's that's running it here. We can't get along. I said, well, that's on you guys, guys. I can't even take your calls right now. So respectfully, I, I'm, I'm not in that position to make any decisions, you know. It was all coming back to me again. And I'm thinking, you know, and, you know, the guys that I came up with in the club, when they decided, they heard that I was going to quit, 
And they came over and they're like, man, you're going to quit. And I'm like, guys, I can't do this no more, man. I gave as much as I could give of myself to this club. Like you said, I wasn't the guy sitting at home petting the cat when everybody was doing stuff. I was running in the doors first and foremost when guys were like, we got this. And I'm like, you got it with me. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm coming with you. So I told them, I can't do that. You guys all love my mother. I love my mother. I can't do that to them. I'm going to be the death of them. And I'm going to hang it up, you know. And that was my decision to hang it up. I quit the club in 2004. And then a few months later, I got Rico'd. <laughs> the yeah. Rico came, you know. And it was like I was paying the penance of my past, as I said. And I'm funny. I made a promise to my daughter, Danielle. And now she's, you know, in her, you know, 14, 15. And I said, I'm not going back. I'm done. I'm going to concentrate on you and the family. And I'm going to live a, a, a different life now, mm-hmm. you know. And she said, okay, in the morning that... Bayless and the crew, but Bayless wasn't at Miles, but the morning the ATF SWAT guys kicked my doors in, it was about 5.30 in the morning. I was, it was at one of the girls' houses I was with, you know, and uh, I was having eight o'clock breakfast with my daughter. So my daughter was at the restaurant waiting for me. And then my mother called her on the phone and she said, I, I need you to come over to, to, our, to my house. So she went by her grandma's house. The girl I was with, Kathy, was at the house. And, and my mom said, they came and grabbed your dad this morning. You know, they locked them up and charged him with Rico. So my daughter was upset because I had just promised her I'm never going back. But then when she learned about it and she said, this is all from the 90s. From the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. When yeah. I was pleading guilty to the Rico, my last predicate act was 97 because then I went away. Yeah. Right, you know? right, 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 <laughs> so right. 2004, I'm pleading. I'm like, okay. So, I'm, you know, I'm locked up and, um, you know, I mean, talking to the Lord. And I said, all right, Lord. It's got to be something here, so, you know, because I came home and I started changing my lifestyle. I got rid of the, the you know, the, the, the one percenter stuff and the, me personally selling drugs enough for the club. That was my gig, right? That's how I supported myself with the, with the selling the drugs and everything. And I gave up all that. I'm running nightclubs and I'm, you know, but I still wasn't cleansed of everything. I still had that womanizing in me. I still wanted to, you know, have, a, you know, be, be with multiple girls. I still was in that lifestyle. Yeah, I wasn't shooting dudes off motorcycles or selling drugs anymore, but I'm thinking, all right, I'm not a bad guy right now, right? But I still had that <laughs> that cleansing, right? And that's when I sat there, and it was um, 2005, and um, and I was in an 8x10 by myself, you know, and I got down on my knees, and I said, all right, God, you got my full attention. You know, I was praying the whole time I was, you know, as you always, I always say, I don't want to be that hypocrite. So when I went to the joint the first time, and of course, knowing the Lord and being, you know, Catholic and all that, everything, I started praying. I started fellowship when I'm, I was reading the Bible. I was getting into the Word. You know, a lot of guys leave the prison and they throw the Bible at the, at the front door to somebody else. Well, that's the you, you better take it with you. <laughs> it just doesn't work for in there. Now you're going back into the real world, right? So I always said, I never want to be that hypocrite. I never want to leave you. I want to fellowship with you and feel your presence constantly. So when I came home and, you know, from the first t- time, I'm praying and I'm listening to him and I'm talking and, you know, get, get my life right. But there was still some cleansing that needed to be done because, you know, road was, was a fine line between road and Mel still. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and um, so, you know, so I'm back in there and I said, okay, you got my attention. Here I am. I've got down on my knees. I don't know what I'm looking at. 20 plus years possibly, you know, no, no outcome yet. Just the doors got kicked in a few weeks earlier. And I said, um, use me as your vessel. I'm here. If, 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 if my job is to go to these penitentiaries and show somebody a change of life or, you know, the, the, the fellowship I have with you, so be it. 
if I could ask, maybe you don't keep me here forever <laughs> and I could go home, but it's in your will. And that's when, that's where my relationship with the Lord really got strengthened out. And I wouldn't change that for the world. You know, it sucked. I had to go to some, some, you know, hardcore federal penitentiaries, you know, nobody knows how to do that. There's no playbook of how, what's going to happen in there as me and you talk about and stuff. So, you know, he protected me enough through another season and protected me in there. And that's how that relationship grew. And that's how, you know, I'm where I'm at, of course, at today, right? Was there one guy that you really felt like paved the way for you? or Like m- multiple, a little bit. Like I told you a story about, you know, my dear friend at the time who was the sergeant of arms for our chapter, you know. And, uh, you know, he. I always say there was, you know, without a pulley, there wouldn't have been a road, you know. And I mean, you can't, you're not, it's not a one-man show, you know, as much as the, like Lou said, you, you could get a one-man target. Right. <laughs> but you don't have a one-man show right. when, when you're doing this. You're not, you know, you're not uh, um, Chuck Norris, as we like to say, you yeah, know. Yeah. So I respected a lot of guys in the club, you know. Um, a guy that you interviewed, George Christie, right? I, You know, George was in the club many, many years before I was around, right? And he had, you know, a lot of respect out here, you know, not only on the West Coast, but through a, a Sonny Barger, you know what I mean? Guys like that that were older and paved the way, you know. You know, as you as, as they say, you know, I might have been the, the target in Chicago and the guy that people respected and feared, but there was many guys like that, right? I didn't invent that, right? I wasn't the guy that could take any credit for that. I was groomed. I watched. As you know me now for some time, I, I pay attention to things, a lot of things, talking and actions and stuff like that. So multiple guys that I respected in the club that showed me a lot of things, you know, in, in life and had my back 100%. wasn't the, the road Mel show. It was we were all together and doing this, you know, and, and we had that team. And, and uh, so multiple guys that I looked up to that, you know, I, I, I asked for advice for, you know, what was going on. And then I had guys telling me, hey, man, y- you got to reel it in a little bit. We know you guys are in the middle of the hornet's nest, but, man, you're going to end up in the penitentiary for a long time. Well, what do you do? How do you? Yeah, what's it like to hear that? I mean, you. Yeah, I remember hearing that. I remember being on a run, a big run, and and a couple of these older Hells Angels were looking at me and saying, hey, man, we get it. You know, we we get that. We started a turmoil in Chicago, and you guys are there living it, right? It's easy for somebody to come in from a different chapter and hang out for a day, four or five days, but they go home. We don't. Yeah. So, you know, people were like, how come you didn't bring 50 guys in? And just run around and get the, well, because they're going to leave and we're still here. Yeah. We got to, we got to try to, you know, do this and slip through the cracks and do whatever we can do. Right. And uh, like I said, you know, the Outlaws in the nineties had a real live crew, John, you know what I mean? We weren't just rolling in on them guys and they were going, ah, they were pulling out and throwing lead at us when they needed to and doing what they needed to do. Right. So, you know, um, and then hearing like, you, you got to take it easy a little bit. How do you find that balance? You can't, you know, I mean, we're out at strip clubs trying to have a little fun and be seen and kind of controlling the territory we're in and our pagers are going off, you know, Hey, nine, one, one, a couple of the other guys here, they just jumped the guy here and we got to get the girls off our lap and we're gone at the drop of a hat. We, that's the way that we had to live that life. And if you weren't ready, then, you know, We've had guys that left the club during that war. They were like, you know what? It's just a little too much. How about guys joining? I mean, like, who's joining up in that? And how does that, like, how do you how do you judge? Like, what what are you looking for? And so, yeah, <laughs> not many. Yeah. I, in, in, in the 
12, 13 years I was in the club, I sponsored one dude. And I grew up with him in, in, in the neighborhood, in the suburbs of Chicago. Our families grew up around each other. And I sponsored him. And, uh, and he came in through that. Right, but we didn't have dudes beating our door down, going, "Hey, we want to join. <laughs> yeah. We see the news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We see what's going on. Hey, yeah. you know." So it definitely takes a different cat to come in and be like that. You know, a couple dudes did come in and prospect and and, and get their patch through that war, but not at all. Different now on the, on on the outlaw side because they controlled the city. They were the big dogs in the city the whole time, and now the Hell's Angel name comes in, and now you got two of the powerhouses in the same blocks, right? So they had other support clubs that were that were loyal to them. So when I tell you that at the height of this, we had 13 guys in Chicago. They could put 100 guys together from Chicago, Indiana, because we were on the where we lived, they were on the border of Gary, Indiana, Joliet, which is the south of the city, two chapters in Chicago, and Wisconsin's an hour and a half away where they got 30 guys just in Wisconsin. They could put 100 guys at an event together in 30 minutes. Wow. We, to, for us to get 100 guys, we got to call West Coast, East Coast, and stuff like that. So we were greatly outnumbered when it came to physical bodies. And we had that to try to overcome that obstacle. How do you deal right? with that? Get them, on, get them on the sneak, right? We weren't going to bike events where we knew that they were going to have 100 guys show up at a bike run. We couldn't have that. And then we're going to be in the middle of a bike run, and you see the stuff that's going on now, and the shootings are happening right there because who's going to get hit with a ball peen hammer? Who's getting hit with an axe handle? It, this stuff was no, no more. It was the shootings and the, and the stuff like that. So we knew if we went to, okay, they're having this McCormick Place event, there's going to be 100 of them there. We're going to waltz in. Even if we put 25, 30 guys together, it's going to be on immediately. And when the dust settles... The feds are just going to pick the dead up and take them to the, to the morgue, and they're going to pick up the living and take them to the penitentiary. So, you know, we weren't going to them. We didn't have the numbers to do that at the time. So we had to be covert and tit for tat these guys where we can get them at. And, and, what, and what, what's, what's the biggest, like, what's the biggest misconception? What's the biggest <clears throat> thing that, that, that when, you, when you talk to the layman, like the Joe Public guy, but when, when they think about the outlaw biker world like what's what, what what's the thing everybody gets wrong and they don't get um you know when i tell the old stories and you know i see my friends now that you know didn't know me a lot of a lot of you know i'm in florida now right for the last 10 years a lot of people didn't know that old me right and they'll, they'll, i'll tell them stories and stuff like that you know it, it's glamorized in in of course the brotherhood and that camaraderie it's like, it's like me coming here, John, with you. And I know Aaron and her father and the whole, all the Angle families. The, the hospitality that I've had here since Wednesday, I'm home, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm home here with yeah, you guys, right? Yeah. You guys are my family, right? And that's how it is. That is such an amazing feeling. And I, I would, everybody would want that part of it, right? But then comes the nonsense, right? You know, we're a motorcycle club, but where do we draw the line to where we're becoming a gang kind of in living that mentality, right? So I think people, you know, let's go back in the 90s and, and people were glamorized by it. Now I'm not sure. I've been out of the, that lifestyle for so long. I'm not sure what people think of the, of the motorcycle world. It's much more talked about. There's podcasts just on the 1% world, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can, you have guys 
that are in these clubs and they have social media yeah. and they're having pictures and stuff like, yeah. right? Like you couldn't hide me back in the day because I always had this this kind of hairdo. I was longer in the back. I lost some more through the years, but I always had a different, you know, hairstyle. I was 290 pounds, tatted up. I looked different. I wore my patch everywhere I went besides when I was training, you know, I'm the training in normal clothes. But if I was at downtown, if I was on a plane, if I was at a club, I was out. Whether we were on our motorcycles or not, I'm having we wear our patch everywhere. Yeah, you know. Um, so you know that's that. Now it's so changed. I mean, guys are showing their faces. We weren't trying to let everybody know who we were. I remember one time one of the members called me up. He says, "Hey, you you around?" I said, "Yeah, I'm around. What's up?" He goes, "Come on down to the clubhouse. I want to talk to you." I said, "Okay." I get down to the clubhouse. And he goes, look at, this was left on our doorstep. I open up the manila envelope, and it was an epic manual that the, from the, that the feds had. And it, you've seen, like, you know, ATF sensitive and stuff like that. And I start opening it. It's every picture of the outlaws, their addresses, their homes, their license plates. And it was just delivered to our door. Holy shit. Nobody knew how it got there. So I'm looking at this epic manual. Am I calling it right, Lou? The epic manual, right? Okay, so I'm I'm seeing all this and I'm like, and the member goes, Man, a gold mine, huh? And I go, Yeah. I go, but guess what? They got one too. <laughs> Who delivered this to our door? This didn't come from, you know, of uh, somebody in the club. Right. <laughs> Uh, we don't know to this day who did it, right? But guess what? They got one on us. That's the mystery that'll never be probably solved. I right. don't know if there was, you know, an agent that wanted the fuel of the fire. I'm not, I don't know, so I can't pass that. What up. was it, Lou? Don't know the answer. <laughs> 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 but they got one too. But, you know, we had a, a, an unwritten rule back in the day no homes, no families, you know, that's, and that's what we were mostly living by it got violated it did get violated but we were saying like you know no families i, I seen one of them cats in a restaurant where, where was my spot my restaurant where i was in all the time and when i walked in and seen the patch and he was with his girl and a kid and i was with two other guys and the two other guys looked and and they said hey man they did this to us and i go i get it man but not happening and i went over and told him guess what beat it man you know i see who you're with and we're going to respect that if it was you it's on and popping here you're, you know what i mean we got you <laughs> and uh he 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 respected that and he got up and got out of there and i seen the look in his lady's eyes and mm -hmm. and and they respected that so we pretty much kept that unwritten rule but but it got violated you know they they jacked up one of our guys girls you know, and that was a kind of like something that we weren't familiar with and didn't want to do back, right? But it was getting so heated up, and 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 the tension was so hot, and the and the egos and the and the and the attitudes and the and the violence was getting so raged that it blurred the lines on their side too, right? Just like I, what I was doing. If you had some of them guys here and interviewing them, it'd probably be the same kind of interview, right? That's right. Yeah, for sure. You yeah. know, so you know, so um. You know, we had that unwritten rule. But, you know, them, them were the times back then, John. And so I think where people see all that stuff and glamorize it now with the one percenter world and it's just you can read about it and watch it on the news and see these cats and the podcast and everything. I, I think that people are just like they want to they want to put that patch on not knowing 
what comes with that or not knowing the history of it or you are your brother's keeper. You're mm-hmm. not just, you know, Sons of Anarchy kind of like blurred them lines for this world, I like to say, you know, because it made it cool. Watch mm-hmm. Jacks ride around. They're killing ATF agents. Nothing's ever getting done. Right. It's not a real world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. You know yeah. like people say, oh, you know, I did said something. They're like, oh, this guy took his... uh his persona from Jax. There's no Jax back in 1990. There's no Sons of Anarchy. You know what I mean? Like, you know, we weren't stealing anything from some TV show. It was us, you know? So that kind of blurred the lines where everybody's like, let's put that patch on. Let's run in this world. Holy cow. They just killed Jojo. Man, I'm out. And you see that going on right now. Or, hey, guess what, ATF? I got something to tell you. You know, so it's, it's it's definitely changed, right? Sure, and 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 so let's you know talk about a little bit about this big 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 change for you, and 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 so the, so the first time the 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 first time you ever get locked up, it has nothing to do with the has nothing to do with the the outlaw stuff, right? Nothing. Can you can 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 you walk us through through that one? Mm-hmm. So one of the girls that I was with, um, and she, you know I was with her for I think about two years. She just wanted a little more in the relationship, and I, she knew I couldn't give it to her. I didn't really had the time. I, you know, I, I maybe would see her once a week, once every other week. You know, it was, it was like that with most of them. You know, I lived with Nancy, so I got to see her a lot more. It was my main one, my main spot that I lived in. Uh, but I was traveling and running the club, and you know, dodging the feds, and you know, a lot going on for a twenty-four, twenty-five-year-old guy now, right? You know, I couldn't give her the time, and I told her I can't do it. So I'm very tight with your mother and father in her family. And I said, you just got to go on your own way. Go find a dude. And, you know, and me and you are always going to be friends. I told her her name was Kendall. I said, we're always going to be friends, you know. I said, but I can't give you that time. And I loved Kendall. That was, You know, I had my heart was with, with her, you know. So she got a little scorned at me and stuff. Her family owned a, a, a big bar, a big, you know, in our area that was that everybody hung out with, you know, until 4 o'clock in the morning joint and everybody, the who's who came in the spot. So she bartended there and. You know, I'm coming in with, you know, not Nancy, Joanne, or, or Tanda. I'm coming with randoms now. And <laughs> she's telling her dad, oh, I got to sit. And, and he's like, you knew. You know, yeah. you knew Mel a long time, and this is the way he is. And yeah. he's not bringing it here to throw it in your face, but this is where they hang there. You know what I mean? So get over it, right? Yeah. <clears throat> well, she she started dating a guy, and he was a street guy. You know, we were in our, you know, 29, 28 at the time, I'm I'm guessing, and, um, you know, he was a street guy, you know, ran around with the little crew and stuff like that. And I didn't know him from nowhere. I'd see him pop in the bar once in a while. And somebody, her sister told me that's who Kendall's dating. And he knew, seen me and no problems. We never shook hands. We never talked. We just, you know, no big deal. And, um, like, I would say probably six, seven months or something into the relationship, you know, I guess he was, you know, putting his hands on her, right. He was kind of a jealous guy and, and, uh, you know, putting his hands on her and her sister had come to me one time and told me that, that this was happening and just kind of find it hard to believe that she would allow something like that to happen coming from the family she did. And her stepdad, my friend being a ex Marine and he was, you know, his name was George. He was known that he owned this bar and he was known as a no nonsense guy. So I didn't think too much of it, John, you know, I was like, ah, I said, I'm sure it's, it's maybe he just grabbed her or something like that, you know? So, you know, a little bit more time went by and we we're finding out, I was finding out some more stuff and uh, I just happened to be at her family's house and uh, having, having, having a bite to eat. And um, you would go and eat at your, 
Yeah, yeah I would go and eat, yeah, because I was tight with her mom and, you yeah. know, her stepdad. It was yeah. her stepdad that had these bars. You know, I knew him before I knew her. I met her through that, you know, so I was there and uh, and uh, she came walking in the door and uh, she was tuned up, John. She was black and blue, you know, and uh, from him. So as the dad, being an ex-Marine and being a tough dude, he was a former boxer, Nose like yours, I right. You know, we got the little. You know, you know. He took some socks, yeah, right, bro. Yeah, George yeah. was a, was a tough, up, tough yeah. older guy. Yeah. And as he's cocking his guns and everything, and I'm sitting in there, and I said, "Pops, get stop, stop, man. You you can't do this. Where are you going? This can't happen, you know." It's like, well, I said, Let's, let me let me think here. Let me think, you know. So, g- gathered a, you know, two of the guys that I knew that would be great for to take care of this situation. Not knowing what we were going to do again, no playbook, right? And just on the spot happening, you know? So these two had lived together, and her real father had a house, and they were renting the house from her real dad, right? So they lived together in the house. And uh, so we jumped in a vehicle. We had um, George, her stepdad, take her over there. We gave her a little like Valium or Xanax to, to, to calm her down and for the pain and stuff like that. And um, we went went to the, he drove her, we drove separately. And, uh, you know, we told her, we're going to pack up some of your stuff out of that house. We're going to get your stuff out of the house. You're going to call up your dude, your, you know, the guy, and tell him that he's going to come here and grab all his stuff. And tomorrow morning, your real dad's coming here and changing the locks, and you two are a wrap, right? You're going to tell him this, right? And, you know, we knew the whole time going back to this house when she made this call from the house that he was going to come because he would, you know, he would be sorry afterwards. He, they'd get in a fight, he'd put his hands on her, and then he... That was the he, pattern. He'd yeah, beat her, pattern. and then he'd come apologize. And then he and said, cry, I'm sorry, yeah. and stuff. And she'd get back together with him, right? And they'd stay together, right? So when we were in the house, and she gave him a call on the phone, and he was like, no, Kendall, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just get a little aggravated. And he was kind of a jealous guy. She was a good looking girl. Nobody could look at her. One of them guys. Right. And, um, he was a gang guy, right? Yeah. He was a street street dude. Yeah. He ran with some, with some dudes and stuff like that. Like the calm street guys, you know? And, uh, you know, and, uh, so as she's got him on the phone and he goes, don't leave. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. And that's exactly what we were waiting for. Right. We were, you know, we knew the deal. Right. And, um, so, (laughs) So when uh, when he arrived there, it was very cold. Uh, we just found out the dates from putting all this together. It was December 15th in Chicago, you know, very, very cold, you know, below weather and stuff like that. And we're in a suburb. We're in a really nice suburb, you know what I mean? Like, you know, in, in this house, it was a really nice neighborhood. So when he uh, arrived to the house, her car was out there, you know, because the dad drove her car, stepdad drove the car. And they walked out. You wanted the car out front. Yeah, we wanted the car out front so he could see she was there and stuff. So, and they, the dad knew that when the when he knew arrived and that door opened, the front door where he came in, they were leaving. They were getting out the, the side door. So when he showed up in there, and the door got shut behind him, I was sitting on the couch, <laughs> standing right, <laughs> sitting right there when the lights popped on, and you know, and he said, "Hey, hey." Uh, Where's Kendall? I said, she's not here. Well, we're cars outside and not no more, you know. So um, that's where this story has starts. And, you know, and, you know, there's a lot of sensitive stuff. But yeah. I'm going to tell, the, you know, because this is what did send me to prison. So 
no plan. I just knew that this had to be rectified, right? That this, he needed to be taught a lesson not to do it, especially to somebody that I was so close with that I love, have love for the family. Sure, he wasn't thinking about that at the time, but here we are in this situation, right? So he walks in, he walks in, he's with another guy, right? He's with another guy, yeah. And, and, and the other guy that he was with, Kendall's sister told me a story that one time when her ex was putting his hands on her, the other guy stopped him and said, you're not doing this in front of me. And that happened to be that other guy. And, and, and so what, it, I mean, when they walk in and they see you there. Yeah, they were definitely taken by surprise <laughs> and they were white eyed, you know what I mean? To see me in there and to turn around and see the two other boys there. Yeah. All big cats. Yeah. Long hair. I was the only one with the short hair. They knew which t- way it was tatted going. up. They knew it wasn't let's sit down and let's, let's have some ice cream and sing Kumbaya. Yeah. They knew. And I said to the dude, I said, Hey, I heard the story. This is what you did. You know, you pulled him off or yes, I did. Okay. And, uh, I'll tell it like this. We gave him a pass. Okay. And, uh, I don't want to get into where he went, but we gave him a pass. Okay. So now it's me and this, this guy, right? A couple years younger than me in the home. And I tell him, this is how this is going to go down. You know, it's me and you here. Don't worry about these other two boys. This is the, this is the get go. This is the time. And he was trying to tell me, you know, it ain't like that. It ain't like that. But it, you couldn't change my mind. Cause I, I seen the results, right? So things don't go his way there. And, you know, as, as the court records go and we had a, you know, say, you know, talk about this in there, you know, we duct taped them in, into a chair and we, a full roll of duct tape and put them in a chair and he got some beatings, you know, he, from me with, with a ball bat through the body. Right. And, uh, you know, giving him the message with that. And, um, you know, like I said, man, no plan, John, we don't really know what we're going to do. We know we're not going there to kill anybody because a whole family's involved. That was yeah. never any kind of issue with us. But with myself in the room and two, the two of the other boys that were all high-strung guys, you kind of never know where that's going to go. Yeah. I mean, I knew if I could speak for me, and I know I wasn't going to do anything, but I, I, wild cards are my two guys, right? Yeah, yeah, you never yeah. know what's going to happen, right? And so, yeah. you know, and then the whole time I'm driving over there, I'm like, oh, because, you know, this is before everyone went away. And, you know, I knew the Lord. So I was like, all right, Lord, like, <laughs> probably shouldn't be doing this, but, you know. Yeah. Um, so it, it, things don't go good in the house for him, right? And we're in the middle of taking care of him in this house, right? And uh, it's very cold, like I said. So I tell one of the guys, I said, go outside and start the car. Get this car warmed up for us to go out there. We're going to take him and his buddy, and we're going to drop them off at a forest preserve, and his buddy can go take care of him later in the hospital or something like hospital, that. Yeah. Take him to the hospital, right? So that start, go start the car up. So as he goes outside and starts the car up and everything, he comes running back in. And he's, you know, winded out of breath, you know, st- st- you know, discombobulated from what he's seeing. And he goes, hey, bro, hey, hey, look out the blinds, you know. And, you know, it's about 10 o'clock at night from what I can remember. It's nighttime. And I looked out the blinds. I popped open the blinds, and it looked like right now day. All I seen was just, I'm like, did the sun come up? Like, what's going on? I look, and I couldn't. It was so blinded on the house, I couldn't see past. And I went to a side window and looked out, and I seen all the Chicago 
SWAT vehicles. And we weren't in Chicago. We were in a town called Evergreen Park, which is a suburb, like, yeah. you know, being around here. And I'm like, I go, man, like the whole entire SWAT team is, you know, out here with lights shining and everything. And I said, man, I said, they're, they're here. How are they here? Well, go check and see. Dude, dude split. Went to a local s- store down the street, like a 7-Eleven, a white hen, like a pantry, I'll say. And there was a cop in there, an Evergreen Park cop. And he told the cop, hey, the Hells Angels, Mel Chancey, grab, got my friend in a house. They got him kidnapped in a house. Well, the Evergreen Park police are like, <laughs> what? So they call up Chicago, yeah. and they have time to put this together. Because we're in the house for 45, 50, you know, 45 minutes, yeah. an hour, right? Yeah. We're not yeah. like, you know, it's, it's taken a few minutes to, you know, give him some messages, right? So I'm like, all right, boys, time to clean it up. They're coming in. We know they're coming in, right? So, you know, we cut him out of the chair and you know you can't i mean he's got a sweatshirt on it's cold the, the, the duct tape is not coming off the sweatshirt and we just cut him so he can get up and out and what do you do now you're trying to you know plan for the best right so we're cleaning up the house as much as we could and i'm having a conversation with him come on let's go sit at the kitchen table these boys are ready to kick the doors in here you brought me here right yeah i did okay i didn't come here on my own right so you're going to do the right thing when these guys come through the door and you're going to say that this happened on the street with your street crew guys, right? Okay, I got you. He's, he was all on the team, right? So I'm at the table, and they're over the loudspeaker. They're calling the phone, and we're not getting it, right? Because now her stepdad's not there. She's not there, and her real dad's not there. He owns the house. One of my guys is standing in front of the door, and they're there, and they're going, open up the door. And he's like, I can't open up the door. He goes, this ain't our home. We're just here moving some of Kendall's stuff out, right? And I look, and I see he's just red dotted right through the glass and everything. Yeah. And I said, hey, bro, get, come on. Come on and sit down, right? So they kick the doors in. We're sitting there like this, right? And they come in. We're like, we're not armed. We're unarmed. No weapons in the house and stuff like that. So they grab us all, handcuff us, him too. They bring us out, throw us in the paddy wagons and stuff. And um, and they go through the house, the whole nine yards, right? So we go into this Evergreen Park lockup because we committed the crime right in their town, right? So they're going to run it. We go into this cold lockup, you know, me and me and the two brothers. Now about 1 o'clock in the morning, this is like 10-something I'm saying, about 1 o'clock in the morning, um, I'm laying there freezing, right? I got my sweatshirt pulled down like a dress. I'm laying on a piece of metal. It's just me. We're all in, we're all in our own individual cells. And I hear this girl's voice. And I hear, Mel, Mel. And I'm like, wake up out of the sleep. And, and I go, Kendall? And she goes, yeah. And I go, what? she's in the cell next to me. I said, what? how are you here? She goes, they came and got me at the house and arrested me. And I said, okay. I said, relax, chill out. George is your stepdad. He'll, you know, we're going to go in the morning, get arraigned in this little town here and stuff like that. George got you. You didn't do nothing wrong. I don't even know why they grabbed you, but, you know, we got this, you know. So I see her in the morning. We go, we're going to court. You know, she's on one side. They put her and separate her from us, and we're on the other side. So it's just us three and her, and we're talking. She tell me how they come in the night and got her. And, you know, so she goes, what are they charging me with? I go, well, I don't know what they're charging us with. Yet. We're going to find out yeah. very shortly, yeah. you know. So we went in the courtroom. Hearing the charges that they that they made up in attempted murder and kidnapping and home invasion and everything and charged her with the whole thing Fuck. because they were putting it together like thinking that she ran the charger but she didn't she knew nothing we didn't she didn't know we were doing this fishing expedition in, in this house because she wouldn't have went for it obviously she kept forgiving him right 
she would have said, no, let's just go get my stuff home and let him go his separate way. So, you know, anyways, they charged her with all that stuff. A few months later, when we were all going back to court and stuff, her lawyers and everything like that got all her charges dropped. You know, they didn't go further with hers. But now, so that's December 15th, 16th, we're in arraignment and everything like that right before Christmas. Well, now they find some guns in the house. They find some ski masks in the house, all scattered through the house and everything like that. So they're charging, that's all our stuff. They're charging us with them. So they no bond us. And the judge says, the guns are getting ran for fingerprints right now. Um, you know, we're gonna, when them come back, if these guys' fingerprints are on the guns, I'll no bond them. I'll keep them locked up until this trial goes on or whatever. But if their fingerprints ain't on the guns and there's, you know, no weapons and stuff like that, I'm going to have to set them a bond. So December 24th, Christmas Eve, we go back for the bond hearing. No fingerprints on the guns from us, right? Gloves, you know, no fingerprints, right? So um, they give us a bond, a high crazy bond. We get out. I get out Christmas morning. You know, I forget. It was dark out, 6, 7 o'clock in the morning. The guys come and, you know, our lawyers come and the treasurer comes and they post the bond, 10% of whatever the bond was. You know, the, it was, the bond was like 300 grand, so 30,000, you know, to get me out. You know, 20 to get the other guy out. Ten, you know, it was, it was all like that. So we get out and we fight, start fighting the case from the street. You know, month after month, you have to show up in court to be present. You know, even if it's a status hearing, we had to be there, right? And they have him tucked away somewhere to, you know, because he's going to, you know, tell the story of what happened in the house now. So they got him hidden out somewhere and stuff like that. We're going to court, going to court. A few months into going to court, you know, um, January, February, March and stuff like that. Our lawyers give us a call up and they said, hey, guys, here's the deal. They, You guys got to come in to the... to." They want to do hair, hair samples from you guys. They found some hair fibers in the ski masks. And they want you guys to give, I had to grow the sides of my hair out and everything like that. They took, you know, 25 samples here, 25. They took like 50 hair fibers from each of us. The two other boys had real long hair. I mean, down to the middle of their backs, right? So, you know, they didn't have to grow it on there taking hair samples. Our lawyer says, Mel, you know the drill. If, if it's your hair fibers in the masks... It's going to be hard to beat a home invasion. It's going to show that you guys came in with intent to do this, not just to move her out, right? You guys are saying these ski masks ain't yours. They're, they're all his in his home where he lives with her the whole nine yards. I go, I get it. My lawyer's name was Jeff. I said, I get it, Jeff. You know, so we do the hair samples, you know, give them the hair. About three weeks later, the lawyer calls me up and he goes, hey, I don't know how. He goes, but the hair fibers that they found in the ski mask were his and i said okay well they found them under his pillows so when my dude was going around cleaning the house up he threw things in his room right under his pillows he threw the ski mask in his closet he threw the gun they threw the guns right in where him and kendall lived together right and this is where i say i was telling you a story the hand of god by the yeah. grace of god they found that so we get an expert that comes in to one of the court cases and says, if you went into a target and you tried a ski mask on and you pulled that thing off, it's a 97% chance you're going to leave a fiber in there. Wow. So if we would have had the masks on with the long hair and everything like that, it should have been our fibers. They were his under, from under his pillow. The guns, none of our fingerprints on them. He had a case where him and another dude jacked up a, a, a convenience store with ski masks and a gun. 
prior case, prior predicate for him, a case. So now the lawyer said, these are his, Your Honor. Obviously, he's a street guy. He's got guns in his house. Kendall takes the stand and said, I seen them guns. Wow. I seen them bulletproof vests. Wow. Because there was vest involved. I seen them ski masks in my house the whole time I was with this guy. Wow. Wow. So wow. that, there goes the home invasion, the, the, the predicate act of, we were planning this, the conspiracy and everything like that, right? So there goes that. So when the trial part comes to come around, we did a bench trial with the, with, with the judge and everything like that. And, uh, you know, after, you know, five days of the trial and everything, he, one of the charges was the lesser charge, the lesser charge of all of them with the home, the home invasion, the kidnapping. They call them class X felonies in Illinois. That's what holds the time. Then there was an aggravated battery part that didn't, you know, that didn't hold all that time. The judge found us guilty of the aggravated battery and we were sentenced from there. So, you know, going through all this and seeing how this played out, I took the stand in, in the trial on our behalfs because we had to talk about the elephant that was in the room. They had a sweatshirt that was full of duct tape, full of blood. How could we say we didn't duct tape this guy to a chair when here is, here is the evidence right here? The duct tape had one of the members, one of the guy's fingerprints on him, which was kind of shocking to me, right? But... Um, it, they found the fingerprints on the duct tape, you know. Um, so, you know, the lawyer, my, my lawyers, they had their own individual lawyers. My lawyer was kind of like the head lawyer of all this. And he said, you can't, you're going to have to take the stand, Mel. You got no criminal record at the time. You're going to have to say, yes, you did go in there. Your anger got the best of you. You put him in a chair and you beat him with that baseball bat. You know, everything else is falling, the home invasion, the kidnapping, you're not going to get around this battery part, right? It's just can't, it's not beatable. You go in there and get on the stand and you lie about this and they're showing all this. The judge is going to know you're lying about sure. everything, right? <clears throat> so that's what I did. I got on the stand and said, this was me. You know, I brought these two guys with me. I did this, you know, the whole nine yards. And, and this is what, what happened. Yes, we duct taped them in a chair. Your Honor, my, it got the best of me because, you know, I'm so close to the family and everything like that. So they found us guilty of, the aggravated battery part of it, and they gave us four years, which the courtroom erupted because, you know, as Lou was back there telling you, half of the courtroom <clears throat> was federal agents. It's a state case, state cops, federal cops, and the other half of the courtroom was our family, friends, and the club. So when the verdicts were coming down, not guilty of, of kidnapping, you know, you hear, ah, not guilty of, of home invasion. Once the last class X was read and it was not guilty, well, then they knew that it was short time now for the aggravated battery. So the, the, the Fed side and the state side, they're getting all mad. Ah, oh, bullshit, everything like that. <laughs> Our guys are cheering, right? You got different things going on. Yeah. So he kind of cleared everybody out of the courtroom. Yeah. And wasn't having it, you know. Right. And um, guilty of aggravated battery, you know, okay, the, the state's attorney jumps up. All right, Your Honor, I want to revoke their bond. They're a flight risk. Blah, blah, blah. Our lawyers say, they've been showing up here for 14 months fighting this case. We want to say, leave them out on the street. The judge said, I'm not leaving them out in the street. Revoked our bonds. We went to Cook County you know, jail that day, you know, went on the bus to county in our normal clothes and stuff like that. Sat in Cook County for 30-something days, a month and a half or something like that. Came back for sentencing. And the sentencing range for us was 3 to 10. Okay? So the Feds, the cops, everybody's got pressure on this judge because, like Lou had said, I was the target, right? We got him. We didn't get him where we wanted to get him, but he got himself here, and let's give this kid 
you know, they were putting pressure on the judge, you know. The judge sentenced each one of us to four years. And one of the members that was in there, in that room, was out on parole. He just came home from the joint. Mm. He was not even home a year, so he was out on parole. <clears throat> we thought for sure he was going to get some more time being out on parole and catching another case. The judge gave us all four across the board, you know. And, uh, you know, we then we went off, you know, to the state penitentiaries. You know, that was the, f- the first time I was away. So it was uh, that was the start of the journey, as we were talking about, yeah, yeah. you know. But now the government was really hot because now I'm off the streets for a few years. I'm not committing any more predicate acts. So my stuff stops. They're still going on with what's happening from, you know, the the, the, the war had just ceased 97 and stuff. Like I said, I went, went away right after that. So, you know, now they were, you know, not too happy. They didn't want me to go away. You know, as I found out later, th- they were telling the locals, listen, unless this guy's doing something horrible, don't pull him over for speeding on his motorcycle. Yeah. Don't pull him over because you might thought he had an extra drink leaving the bar. Leave that for us. Let him have some free run so he can hang himself, you know. And I hung myself on my own. And, you know, the guys that were doing the case were like, shit, we're not trying to get him for four years. We're trying to, you know, pump him sunlight into a federal prison because we got him for so long, you know. And then that's where I come home and then, you know, change my life and run into nightclubs. And just I never went back. So I never had another predicate act outside of that year, 1997. I was say I really never rode with the club again from that time on because I was home. I was on my non-association. I was still in the club. I couldn't see the club or be around the club, and it gave that gave me that time to really, you know, get in with my family. Like I said, I wanted to do run the nightclubs and start a different life, you know. And then when I quit the club, it, it was like I said, it was shortly after that. Then the Rico came. So, tell about that guy, about your relationship with that guy, and 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 where that went to as to as to as much as you can. Yeah, because obviously we've, we've had a lot of discussions about about this thing, and 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 I'm and, and, and that that event for him. Changed him as well. Changed him as well. Took a took a crazy turn for me and him, right? <clears throat> so that's 97, 2012. So when I come home from prison uh, the first time, you know, I have a restraining order on me against him. I can't be <clears throat> I can't be in the same room as him. If I walk in a bar and he's there, I, I got to leave, right? So I never see him or nothing like that. I go away for the RICO. I come home from the RICO in 2008. 2012, I walk into a, a bar with a couple of my friends, not not in the club no more, not no club guys, just a couple of my friends. And I turn the corner and I see him with a whole crew of friends, you know, 12, 15 guys. <clears throat> and I'm thinking, oh boy, okay, well, this is the time. He's got a whole crew. This is the time if they're going to do it, they're going to do it now. I can't tell my two friends. They all know the story of why I went away, but they none of them knew him. These are my outside friends. They didn't know him. And I can't tell them in a loud bar why all they're looking at me and then I'm going to be over like this. And I'm like, I know these two cats got my back no matter if there's 100 guys. So I wasn't worried about when we were getting busy, if we had to get busy. And he sees me and I walk over to him and he says hello. And I say hello and I put my hand out and he pulled me into him and we gave each other a hug. You know, and at first I was like, uh, is he pulling me in because we're going to go? And I didn't know where his head was. And I said to him, I said, hey, man, how are you? I said his name. I said, how are you doing, man? And he goes, I'm okay. And I said, man, it's been a long time, honey. He goes, yeah. And he said, uh, can I want to walk over and, and introduce you to some of my family? And I said, yeah, for sure, man. Let's go. And I went over, and they all knew the story, right? 
I went over and started meeting people. Hey, how you doing? So my two friends are blind. They're just saying hello to people, just like, you know, we meet a lot of people. So we go up to the bar, and I said, come on, let me get everybody a drink. He said, no, I'm going to get them. I said, I'm getting them. Let me get everybody a drink. Everybody, tell your crew, let's go. Let's get a drink. So me and him are standing at the bar, and we're side by side with each other, and everybody's around. My two guys are in the back of, you know, five feet away, talking to some of his friends. And he looked at me, and he said, Mel, thanks for not killing me in that house. And I said, boy, man, things would have been different in both of our lives had that happened. Obviously, you wouldn't be here, and I'd be doing a million years in, in, the, in the penitentiary. I said, God had a plan. Whether we knew it at the time or not, he had a plan. And I go, and I'm going to tell you something good I heard about you. I heard you're doing amazing in life. I heard you're running a, a huge gym comp, a chain. You're doing great. I heard you, you got a couple girls, uh, kids. And he said, I do. And I said, I hear her, man. People tell me what's going on. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you for that, man. You know, I said, listen, that guy I was back then and that guy you were back then is obviously ain't who we are now. And I said, so, you know, we're, we're blessed, but we didn't know it, right? And, you know, we couldn't both had tears in our eyes, right, you know? So, you know, like I said, my guys didn't know. They were just, you know, so now some of his family and friends are going, wow, that's so amazing to see this, huh? And my friends are like, mm, yeah, okay. But they don't know what he's what talking about, right? Guy? yeah, yeah. So I go to go to the bathroom and, 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 you know, use the bathroom. So one of my guys comes with, he goes, yeah, I got to take a leak, you know. So we go in there and I said, hey, bro, you don't know who that is, right? And he goes, no. I go, you know the story in the house? And he goes, yeah. And I go, that's him. And they, he goes, well, no wonder why his family was saying that. He goes, everything's cool. And I said, everything's cool, man. The guy's changed his life. He's a different man. We both grew from this. And, and I like the cat, man. And uh, we, we continued on, right? So... You know, we've seen you know, we've seen each other that time. I see him now. He's come to the nightclubs. I get a call. Hey, man, so he's down here at the nightclub. Let him in. What? Let him in, man. We're good, man. We're all good. Everything's good. And people are like, okay, you know. So, you know, that started our journey together where we became friends. And he started texting me on Merry Christmas and Happy Thanksgiving and vice versa. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll fast forward it many years later. My wife, Little Mel, throws me a 50th birthday party in chicago i'm already living in florida it's four years ago and i said okay let's go we'll go back there she throws me a big 50th birthday party god there had to be three 350 people there how lou lou comes bayless comes like there's every walk of life that i've been with there's some old club guys there's my high school or i'm grade school teachers there's the kids i played kick the can with i mean it was you know i, I was very loved in the community i grew up as a kid with all the kids so Oh, everybody was at this birthday party. It was like a who's who in the zoo. Federal agents, mafia guys, street guys, bikers, priests. <laughs> my pastor Steve, pastor Steve, that's been in my life. I mean, how about it? We were looking around like, look at this room, right? Like the cast of characters here, right? That was on a Friday. Saturday, we go out downtown. We're going to go hit some clubs for the birthday, right? These, these downtown cats want to throw me a big party in the club. So there's about 50 of us, right, that roll down there. All of a sudden, I hear, get a tap on my shoulder. I said, hey, bro. I hear, hey, bro. And I turn around, and it's him. It's the guy, right? And I go, hey, man, what are you doing here? And I give him a hug, and he goes, it's my cousin's birthday. You guys got the same birthday. We're throwing his party down here. His fate would have it, throwing my party down here. It was called Bottle Blonde, right? Bottle Blonde was the club. And I said, oh, that's cool, man. He goes, can I bring my, you know, one? he goes, let me, let me, you know, come over and say hi to the crew. And I go, bring him over here, man. I go, bring him over here. I go, look, we got bottles. Everything's out. I go, I know these guys really good, man. Come on over here. 
So when he walks away, I grab Chris Bayless because Chris knew him from the grand jury stuff. Because later in life, I did that state time. But when the, when the feds hit me with the racketeering, they used that as a predicate act for a conspiracy part. They charged us with a conspiracy to kill him in that house because I brought two other Hells Angels with me. So it was kind of like the double deck thing, right? So I said to my lawyer, how does this happen, right? And he goes, well, they're charging you with the conspiracy part. So, um, so Chris knew him. Chris had, you know, interviewed him for the, for the grand jury and stuff like that. So when he walked away, I said to Chris, I said, Chris, do you see that, that guy that was just talking to me? He goes, yeah. I said, did you know who that was? And he goes, no, I don't know who it was. And I told him his name. He goes, wow, really? He goes, he looks different. I go, he put on a little bit of weight, right? I go, but yeah, it's him. I said, I'm going to tell him when he comes back, you know? So I told him, I said, you know who that is? And he looks, he goes, he looks familiar to me. I said, yeah, that's the ATF agent. And he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, man, they were hounding me hard on the federal side of it, you know. He goes, but uh, I just didn't want no part of it. But they subpoenaed him, you know And I mean? So we got to see him there, hang out and everything. And to this day, we, you know, I don't see him. I'm not home in Chicago anymore. And uh, But we text, happy, you know, uh, birthday, Merry Christmas, happy Thanksgiving. He's got a family. He's doing great. And I have the utmost respect for him because, you know, if, if you're going to, I, how can I judge somebody for their past, right? I mean, me of all people, man, I got a, a pretty rough past that I created for myself, you know, and I'm not that hypocrite guy. So, you know, that's why the story's sensitive to me, right, bro? And hadn't I went to prison that first time, I, I, <clears throat> I wasn't rethinking life, you know. I mean, I was a young dude with girls and money and a power thing going on here. And, you know, we became, you know, this notorious underworld, the outlaws and us, uh, you weren't pulling me out of that life. I loved it. Right. I was just focused. I had tunnel vision on that and that only nothing else mattered. Sure. I loved my family, my mother and father and my daughter and everything, but they were well taken care of. My mother and father had a you know great career. Danielle was raised right. I didn't have to really worry that she was on there. There was a wrong path there. I was so focused on the club. You know, and I told him, I said, I have to tell the, the, the part of the story. That's a journey that we were kind of on together. And it's what opened my eyes up and made me think like, okay, I'm, this is not how I want to live, right? So that has to be told, as we said. But to tell it respectfully, it, listen, if the guy didn't change and he was that same cat today, it'd be a different story here. Uh, I would have got a little bit of deeper into things, but sure. he did, man. And I have to love that and honor that because... We were young, man. We were in our 20s at yeah. the time, right? I can't do the math, but if I'm 54, ninth, I was born in 69, 97, we were young kids, you yeah. know? In, in, in living, both living violent worlds, right? He lived in a violent world, right, that he created. I lived in a violent world that, we, that I created, and we met. And that made something, right? How that did, it made something, and it, it changed him, and it changed me. So... Let me, let me read back. At that 50th birthday party, after he's over there, he said to me, he goes, that's little Mel over there? You know, because we follow each other on social media. And I said, that's little Mel. We call my life Melissa Your little wife, Mel, yeah. Mel and Mel, right? And he goes, can I meet her? And I said, absolutely. And I walked him over and I said, babe, I said, you don't know who this is, do you? And she goes, no. I said, this is who this is. I said his name. And she goes, oh, wow. She goes, listen. She said, what a story. And she goes, and, 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 and it changed my husband's life. I, I heard it changed yours. And he was just sitting there and, and you know, and, and, and all of a sudden he grabbed her and he hugged her mm. and tears came out and I hugged the both of them. 
tears came out of my eyes and I'm like, here we are, Lord, right? We have my 50th birthday party and he's the journey that we had all these years later, right? It was just cool. You know, it was deep. It was felt, you know, and I felt him and I know he didn't have any animosity. He, you know, he could have probably had 15, 20 guys come and try to find me somewhere, the revenge kick, right? And he wasn't on that. So that's why where I say with him, I, I respect him a lot and we still stay in touch with each other. And he knows, you know, he don't might not know what we have going on that we're ready to talk about, but he knows that that's part of the journey of that. Mm -hmm. I have to tell, I have to talk about that story because that's what sent me to prison. And that's what started, changed the trajectory of the way my life was going, right? Because I go away to the state penitentiary. Everybody knows who I'm at, who I am, you know, I'm What's still. What's prison like for you? Um, sucks as far as, you know, I, you know, I couldn't go home at nighttime that cell door shut right I, you know i got locked up like everybody else strip searched like everybody else you know an inmate like everybody else right not seeing my family you know that part you know sucked but as far as in there with the inmates and everything no no issues bro i'm 290 pounds and being you know still everybody's knowing me as the the, the president of the hell's angels in there i know all the street crews I know the gangster disciple boss at the time, the vice lord boss. I know them all. So I'm kicking it in there with everybody that I knew and that were in these joints that they shipped me around. And I got the I got the old diesel therapy. They didn't keep me in one prison. Right. They shipped me around in the state of Illinois, you know, yeah, for yeah. a while, right? And uh, so no problems, no issues and stuff. The guards were cool. A lot of guards rode. So they, you know, they like that. You know, guards are normal guys, right, yeah. that, that live around the prison and that's just their gigs, right? So no issues at all, you know, as you, Lou will say. And, of course, you know, when you get Chris on here, we're saving that for a special time. And, uh, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, Mel was, you know, making out with the guards here. And, you know, they were all hearing <laughs> the stories, right? So, you know, I was taking advantage of whatever I could in there, you know, and people coming to me and stuff like that. So easy time as far as. How, 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 how common is that, making out with, making out with female guards? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was, you know, happening a lot, but there were some female guards and, you know, and we, you know, they're running the pod and locking us up and stuff like that. And, you know, you're, you know, you ain't doing much. Listen, I always knew this. If a female guard gets involved with an inmate, you know, you, we've heard stories where some got impregnated and stuff like that. Well, they're charging them. That's a charge for them. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I never wanted to put that on anybody to, to go that far, but I sure was making out with them, having some fun. And, <laughs> hey, can you bring me some Tylenol PM so I could sleep? I never asked for anything outside yeah, of that, yeah. you know. Having as much of a good time as I possibly can in a bad situation in some pretty rough state penitentiaries, right, where some serious cats were doing lives and stuff like that. I come in with a four-year sentence, like a sleepover, right, to some of these dudes. But I knew everybody, and there was no problems, you know. So, um, like I said, just, just missing the family and just missing home, you know, young. And when I came home, you know, in there – is what I said when I started concentrating on my relationship with the Lord. You know, I was I had a little uh, uh, prayer group that we had. You know, a lot of guys were reluctant to come and do it because you know some guys think like it shows a sign of weakness. Like, uh, we're you know we're we're these thugs, but we're we're you know. But I didn't care, man. And in 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 the thing grew, and you should some of the guys that were part of you know this devotional team were some bad cats, but that wanted to know the Lord and they wanted to know the purpose and stuff like that and. I guess by me doing it, it was making it like, hey, man, this 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 dude's doing it. He ain't afraid to show his faith and his love for the Lord in the middle of this joint. 
I didn't care, you know what I mean? I, I, I was at church on Sundays in there and stuff like that. And then I started, you know, and then they shipped me. And they told me why they were shipping me out of this one joint. They said, here's the deal. We're going to show you a videotape. Because I asked them, why are you shipping me? I'm a model guy. I've never even been in a fight in here. What's going on? Well, we're going to show you why. It's 4th of July, right? Yeah, it was just 4th of July. Here you are eating over in the, in the gangster disciple camp. Now you're over here in, e- eating with the vice lords in their camp. Now you're over there with the ABs eating in their camp. I go, okay, I still don't understand the problem. Yeah, we're not having that. Mm. Off to another joint, you know, mm. and then they ship me. You know, they don't want that. You yeah. know what I mean? The, not, maybe they thought I was trying to pull some coup or bring people together. Wasn't happening. I just got along with everybody. I wasn't in their business, right? That we didn't have each business with each other. I knew all them cats from the street, their bosses, as we were talking about, and I had respect for them, and they had respect for me. You know, respect goes a long way, right? And and, and when you're not coming into a penitentiary, listen, you want to come into a penitentiary, two hundred ninety pounds. I don't care who you're the leader of. If you're doing this, you're gonna find it. They're gonna accommodate you. But when you're laid back, and that's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to do my time. And get out of there and focus on me. And if I could have helped anybody along the way, which I did, you know, Chris will tell you a lot of stories. Bayless will tell you a lot of stories where he's like, man, Mel had the federal sentencing guidelines in one hand and the Bible in the other and said, boys, where do you, where's your choice? <laughs> <laughs> you got some time. We got to do the time. We can't leave. You want to do it, you know, peacefully or, you know, do you want to go run around and be a gladiator? Because they're going to they're going to accommodate you, you know. So the time was okay as far as that went you know and I got home and was able to you know be with the family and stuff and like I said I never wanted my relationship to end with the Lord I want to be a hypocrite I didn't want to say okay you got me through that I'm going to go right back it was a little rough John because when I did come home from that first one everything was there still there for the taken for me everybody wanted okay he's home now right even though he's on a non-association let's make sure he's okay let's make sure this is here this if I wanted to get back into the drug trade, them cats were right there for me and stuff. But, you know, I didn't. And there was a few times where, you know, I was down in my nightclubs, big nightclubs, that I ran all the security in. And some old school dudes would come in and they're like, hey, man, you good here? And I'm like, I'm good here, man, you know. Wow, yeah. making a thousand bucks a week at that time. It's good money running these clubs and everything like that. I'm good. That's good money? Man, hey, we got these keys of cocaine. They're 16 grand. They're going for 30 you want to come on the come up? And I'm like, no, guys, I appreciate it. But come on, man, you're pulling me in the quicksand. Right, right, Because right. I knew if I stuck my foot, stuck my toe in that pool, I'm going to go all the way back in. I'm going to grab a bike. I'm going to want to get in the club. I'm gonna, it's going to remind me. So I always say it's like I'm like an alcoholic, right? I can't, I'm not going to smell a, a sip, a, a smell a Jack Daniels bottle because I'm going to want to down it, right? And that's the way it is with my old life, right? And we all say, I don't ride a motorcycle. I don't go to strip clubs. I don't go into that environment because it's a fine line for me to fight that battle to where road's going to be coming out and, and I'm going to be thinking about all that stuff. This is great. And, and I'm going to be right back in the same mess. And then I'm never coming home again. You know, I don't have any. My criminal history is at maxed out. You know, the federal guidelines across the tops your criminal history across the left side is your your points offense and they come here and that's where that interjects and they give you the months right criminal history starting at zero to one and it goes to five i'm a five right so i don't have the luxury of you know you know having a screw up and that's that's how i've lived my life since then you know and uh it's 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 what works for me and it's 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 what i know you know was it a continual sort of promise of, of, of faith and fidelity or was there one conversation that you remember specifically 
that 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 you said okay from here on in that that that's done yeah so when when i went away on on the rico and you know and at first i was like all right why lord you know like you you got me on this different path here i see a lot of people i'm able to help out in the old lifestyle a lot of guys left left different clubs not only the hell's angels different clubs and came to me and said man we're seeing what you're doing and we we admire it and i was explaining how you got to do it you have to walk away and, and not you know return and uh, now here i'm back in the in the joint right and, and paying for the old and when i got down on my knees in that 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 cold cell that they had me in i was i wasn't in a federal prison yet i was in a holding facility no bond on the rico when they kicked our doors in that morning and we went, that judge was like, no bond, because the predicate acts and the RICO was off from the war stuff, you know, so, you know, no bond with the feds. And I'm sitting in there, and I, when I got down on my knees, and I said, all right, I don't know why or what the, what the purpose is, but you do, you know. I, like I said, I knew the Lord. I was an altar boy. I, I came from a strict Catholic family of knowing the word. My mom and dad instilled it. We prayed over every meal, and we were that family. And I said, but I'm going to trust in you, and, you know, whether I get... 20 years or nine years, you know the rip, Lord, and I'm going to sit back. I'm going to jump in the raft of the lazy river of life. And just as I say, God did this in my life. I made the dumb decisions and I ran down them, them crazy, I call them dead end streets, but he protected me, right? I mean, you see the tombstones, you hear about the, 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 the deaths, you hear about guys doing life in prison. I'm making all these decisions. And he's protecting me. I'm, I'm, you know, I should not be sitting here, right? Them dudes were trying to knock my head off my shoulders and the fed boys were trying to put me and pump me sunlight into a prison for a hundred years, right? And here we are doing your podcast and for a bigger reason. But I, I always trusted him and I said, I'm not going to question you. I'm going to put it neutral. You're driving the car. And, you know, now that I'm home, I always have a funny prayer. And I said, all right, Lord, if I don't ever have to sit in an eight by 10 and eat some ramen noodles again, I'd definitely be a happy camper. But if there's a purpose for that, because you need me to go and touch one person's life of where I'm at, I get it. But if I don't have to, please, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Not trying to. But that's my trust in the Lord, and that's how I've been since 2005. I don't stress on anything. Talking about our project four years in the making, you know, people, you know, wouldn't have patience. Like, come on, let's get this thing going. Let's get this thing. Um. It's it's his it's his show, and I'm just sitting back and being the vessel and living in it, and it makes makes things much easier for me because you know when I get frazzled and try to take things into my own hands, look what it does. I it, it's not a good outcome for me. I I have that like like Chris got a good saying, Bayless got a good saying. He goes, Mel never had a plan B. <laughs> it was run in, do what you do, and whatever happens happens. You know, some guys are like, all right, let's try to get away with this. No. If something happened to us back in the day, for instance, one, one of our guys gets jumped in a bar by some, by some construction guys. He's in there with his old lady. Gets jumped in the bar. He's got his patch on. They beat him up. They see who he is. He gets the get cops come. Some patrons call the cops. Cops come break it up. You want to press charges? Our guy goes, I'm not pressing any charges. I'm good. See you guys later. They give us a call. Pagers go off. We're all out at this time. There's like seven of us, and we're all hanging out in strip club. We all get the nine when we come. What's what's going on? Butch, you good? No, I just got where? At night moves. Right now, who are you with? I'm with my old lady in the parking lot. Where's the dudes? They're inside the bar. But the cops just left. They're all down the street right here at this at this local gas station. And uh, we're, I don't split. We're coming. 
So we come to the parking lot, you know, and he's out there with his old lady and stuff. And I said, all right, boys, everybody give their guns to his old lady. Put them in the trunk of the car. We don't need them. And we're going to go in here and fuck these boys world up right here for, for, for hurting him, right? So, well, let's take a ride around the block, see if the cops are there. I said, I'll do it. Jump in my vet. So me and, me and, the, and the member, we jump in my vet. We drive around. Six squads in the, in, in, the, in the gas station from here to your, you know, your kitchen door, right? But I'm like, don't, do not tell these guys when we go back. These, these guys are sitting here. Who cares? We're going in there and we're jacking these dudes up, right? He goes, okay, we got the sap gloves on, right? So we walk in and the dudes turn around and it's on. Bam, we're getting them. Bottles broken, sticking them in the ribs and a, a melee, right? Yeah. right? And uh, the cops get the call. <laughs> They're like, they think they walked there, right? They were so close, right? <laughs> <clears throat> so as we're exiting the bar and we're all going to get in the vehicles, they shut the two parking, you know, the, the exit spots down and we're, we're in the, we're in the parking lot. Right. So we get out of cars, freezing cold. We jump out of blood all over my pants. You know, the cops got us right. You know, uh, uh, what's going on here? I said, oh, I said, man, our dude got jumped in the bar and he goes, yeah, 30 minutes ago, you guys came back for the retaliation. I said, nobody's saying nothing, Ryan, where it is, what it is, arrest us or whatever we're doing. So, they get the guys, they got out, some ambulances come. Guys are pretty, are pretty banged up, these guys, these construction dudes. And uh, the chief of police of the town, I know him from the gym. He comes, he's, he's off, it's, it's, it's at nighttime, it's 11 o'clock, you know, at nighttime. He, I, he comes and he sees me and stuff and he comes over and he's like, you okay? I said, yeah, I'm okay. And he goes, oh, your guy got jumped here? And I go, yeah. And he goes, okay. He goes, well, the guys are over there. He goes, I'll be right back. Well, this chief goes and tell these guys, hey, guys, you guys are going to press charges, I heard. Huh? Yeah, we're pressing charges. One guy's going to the hospital. He got stuck pretty good with some with a bear bottle and stuff like that, and they're banged, right? I mean, with hammers and the whole nine yards. And he goes, okay. He goes, that, that's cool. He goes, but I, I, I don't have a horse in the race, he tells him. He goes, I'm going to tell you guys something. You know who they were, and you see the big dude that's out there, right? And he's, he's the president and stuff, and he loves his brothers. And they're going to know who you guys are now. I, we can't protect you from that. We, they're going to get your addresses. They're going to get everything. Once it goes into the court system, yeah. they're going to know who you guys are. You jumped that guy, and now they're here. So if, I'm just saying, if that's what you want, we're going to go ahead and do it. And they started thinking, and he goes, you know, I can't go either way with you. So you want to do it. He goes, but I'm going to let you know because these other cops are zealous to get these guys. It, it, it could be a problem. So about 10 minutes later, we're all huddled up because we're cold, right? And we got short sleeve shirts on because we just went in there like this. We're all kind of huddled up and everything like that. And uh, we hear, we got a gun because they were searching vehicles. And I'm like, they got a gun? Well, one of my guys didn't give his gun up. And I can't blame him for that because what if they had one? Now a gun gets pulled out. What, are you going to throw a hammer at him? Yeah. So he brought the gun in and ditched it in the car. So they popped him with the gun, right? And all of a sudden, the chief comes over and he goes, hey, boys, no, don't. We weren't cuffed up. He goes, don't cuff them up. They're, no one's pressing charges. And you hear the normal cops, like, what do you mean? We just talked to them. And the chief goes, I, I, I just came from there. They don't want to press charges, so we don't have nothing going on. And uh, so we were able to, to, to walk out of that. Got our guy out from getting pinched with the gun in the morning time and you know, stuff like that. So, you know, that's the way we were. Yeah. If one got hurt, we felt it. Yeah. And we were there, man. There was no plan B. Like, what are we going to do to get out of it? We're going to go jack these dudes up, and whatever happens, happens, right? You know, we all kind of knew the penitentiary was definitely in our future and the grave sites, right? We always used to say that. I used to have an old saying, and I used to tell 
one of the one of the guys, save me a good spot on your chest for the tombstone for me. And they'd say, oh, I don't say that. And I'm mm. like, well, how am I not going to be there? Mm. Kind of the poster child, right? Mm. How is that not going to happen? So, you know, it was, uh, like I said, by the grace of God that, uh, you know, I'm here. A lot of us were, are still here. You know, a couple casualties, a couple brothers did get killed on both sides and, uh, you know, was part of the part of the turmoil, right, John? But this good Mel, this guy that you are now that's just spreading so much light and, 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 and love, do you make a decision to do that every day? And 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 can you give me an example? Like, can, can you give me an example of how that fills you and 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 how you're sort of propelled to keep living that way? Yeah, I don't think it's a decision that I have to consciously make, right? Like, uh, you know, I'm now it's so habitualized. Yeah, yeah. I get up in the morning time, and you know, I spend some time with with the Lord, right? I fellowship with Him. You see, I do the devotionals in the morning time, yeah. right, on my social media. I video it and read the devotionals, and we lift up brothers and sisters that people are asking for. You know, I know Sydney and, you know, the, the, the Angle family have asked for to lift some people up that were sick or going through some stuff. So we lift them up in the morning time. We'll just say their first name. We don't need to know what they're going through. He does. Right. Let's lift up John. Let's lift the bear and let's lift up mm -hmm. Mel. You know, the, and we do that. And it became a thing where I do it Monday through Friday, every morning. We do it. We call it the John 316 devotional team. And there's people that are part of this and watch this from all around the world, Australia, yeah. Europe, right? Yeah. And and we're fellowshipping with each other like that way. And we're lifting brothers and sisters up and stuff like that. So, you know, when I said I let him run everything I do, so it ain't like I got to say, okay, let me, let me be a good guy today. It's just who I became, right, by his grace, right? And, uh, and I see the people that are a part of this devotional team, as we call ourselves, you know, and... Uh, some bad cats that were some bad cats back in the day that got out of their organizations and, and want to know how did you do it Mel I want to know that relationship that I see you having with the Lord how can I know it call out to him I'm nobody special he loves us all the same mm. he didn't like me better than anybody I just happened to hear him calling upon my heart and I said here I am you know so that's you know something that's just part of my day i love it i don't miss a day i did the devotionals for the last two days from the hotel right yeah, yeah, and yeah. i do it every morning you know monday through friday i don't do it on the weekends just because i'm always traveling with the bodybuilding stuff or with yeah, core yeah. medical and uh, so monday through friday it is and we've been doing this now for i think we're like three and a half years and uh, it's cool man and i i get the fellowship you know some 90 percent of people i never met you know all from overseas and stuff but they're giving me dms I have dudes from other motorcycle clubs that say, hey, man, we're not into this no more. How did you do it? We want to know the, the, the love you did in, in the way you feel. We want to know the Lord. Well, this is how you do it. You know, so it's just part of the, it's part of the journey that he and has. And that same yeah. 100 miles an hour, that same devotion, that same commitment that you had over there, that, that it's, it's just going the other way. It's now. just going the other way now, going yeah. Way now. And, as and you it's see, empowering, huh? Yeah, and yeah. as you know, as you always say, and people always say, you know, like you, you made a good comment one time you said, Mel is just genuinely happy and humbled to be here and to be doing what he's doing, right? And I am, too. I'm just grateful and humbled that I'm in the position to be that way. And, you know, and when, sometimes when it gets hectic and I'm answering the DMs and there's, you know, 50, 60, 70 of them, you know, we're, you know, we're lifting up people. That's no problem. I put them in my notes because I'll forget. As soon as I see a DM and, you know, can you lift up Jill? Can you lift up? I'm putting them in my notes for the morning. But when people are asking me stuff and I'm voice messaging them back like we do. We voice, you know, text the talk, you know, where they hear my voice. And I tell them, hey, brother, hang tight, man. It's not the answer with suicide, brother. God loves you, man. And he's, you didn't find me on, on accident. 
<laughs> there's a reason that you're reaching out to me. If you're, if you're telling me you don't feel it in your heart anymore to be part of that crew you're in, there's a reason you don't, you know, you, you're not call I wasn't calling anybody or reaching out to anybody back in the day. Cause I wanted to get out of the crew. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and you see how it is and you made that comment, you know, and a lot of people do, they're like, Mel's just grateful and humbled to be where he's at yeah. and to be a servant. Right. Yeah. You know, and that's what, that's what Jesus did when he was here. Right. He was a servant as you know. Right. Then I feel like, then I thank him for being a vessel and to see that and allowing me to see the things that have changed not only in my life, but people's life around, you know, you know, our boy Sid, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? We, you know, you're soon to be brother-in-law and, yeah. uh, you know, my partner at Core Medical in the last five and a half years I've been around him. I've seen such a huge change in him, sure. you know, and I'm not taking all the credit, but I know he get he says, man, you changed my life around. He said, I know he's told you that. I mean, I think, I mean, I've heard that from a lot of people, Mel, and I know it firsthand. Yeah. Tell me about, uh, tell me about Dwayne Johnson. Oh, how, yeah. how did he come into your life? All right. So, uh, you know, I'd met him a long time ago in the wrestling ring, you know, me and me and Hulk, me and Terry, our 30 year friends. Right. And, uh, Terry was back in the day. It was like, man, you need to be in the ring. You should be wrestling here and stuff like that. But you know, when I was, you know, you know, running the Angels in Chicago, I didn't want a job. I didn't want to punch a clock no matter how much money they were trying to give me. I just wanted to live on my own terms, you know. And uh, so I just, you know, respectfully, I, I loved wrestling. I grew up a wrestling fan, so I was bouncing around and seeing Terry, seeing Dwayne in passing. You know, he knew who I was, and I knew, of course, I was a big rock fan. But in 2017, we ran into each other at a Mr. Olympia. DJ was going to get up on stage and talk about stuff the Seven Buck Production Company was going to do with the Olympia, the bodybuilding, to bring it more mainstream. Uh -huh. And um, so when he was there and I seen him before I could say, man, DJ, big fan. I haven't seen you in a long time. And I got a message from Terry because Terry and his dad were very tight. Got it. You know, and, uh, and he stopped and kneeled down next to me because we were the press pit was behind us. And he goes, hey, and I just heard your whole story. I never knew what happened to you. And I heard your story and you're working for Jim Mannion, you know, helping run the IFBB and NPC. And he goes, I love it, man. He goes, uh, I got to go in the back. He goes, you coming in the back? He goes, let's chat back there. And I said, okay. So he went up on stage, gave it, gave a speech and everything. And when he got behind the, you know, the scenes behind the backstage, when I went back there, he was surrounded, you know, everybody wanted a picture with DJ and you know, the, the bodybuilders and everybody, the pros yeah. were all back there yeah. in their, in, in their, in their posing trucks, <laughs> taking pictures with him. Right. He was bombarded. And I'm like, I'm not going to go yeah. hold that dude up, man. You know? Yeah. And I didn't, and I didn't see him. He split out the back door. And then probably, you know, six months later, a year later, as 2018 came, people were coming at me to write book, write a book, write a book on my life story. I was, didn't want to do it. Basically because I was actually too lazy and I didn't want to go on no book signing tours, right? I just <laughs> wasn't interested, bro, right? I'm like, let me sit home in the pool. Yeah. Now I got a career going on. I'm with Sid. We're doing core. I'm running the bodybuilding stuff, you know? And um, a couple of networks called me up and they wanted, one wanted to do a reality show with me and they wanted to meet a ghost hunt. And I was like, ah, it doesn't even sound cool, right? Yeah. Like, I don't want to do it. <laughs> so um, Terry actually told me, he's like, you should reach out to Dwayne and just, you know, pick his brain on, you know, because you don't know that stuff. And, you know, what, what would be a right move for you? And I said, nah, I'm not going to do that. I don't know him like that. I'm not the guy that's going to go bother somebody. And I definitely wasn't trying to get into the Hollywood scene doing I don't want to be an actor or anything like that. And I didn't know what to do. So I did reach out to him. And he goes, man, Mel, I, I didn't know you were interested in telling your story. And I said, either did I. 
I go, but here I am. I got some people coming at me, and I don't want to make any wrong decisions. I don't know if I want to make any decision, you know. And he said, okay, so let me ask you one question. So now this was um, Black Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. Frankie, what did we start this in 19? Me and you, you were going to ask me, okay. It was Black Wednesday, and he says, how much of the A can you talk about? How much of your past can you talk about? Because that's going to determine, because Mel, you're in such a different place in your life, and you're inspiring to me myself, he says, and to everybody around you. I hear nothing but good when people say, Mel works for us, or Mel does this with us, and they're like, "What what an amazing dude, what a gentleman, what a this and that. But how much of the old stuff can you tell? And I said, well, I can tell it all. I paid the price for it. I'm home from prison. There's nothing I'm going to say that's going to get anybody in trouble here. And I have the retired ATF agent that did my case that I'm very, very good friends with. And he goes, come on. And I go, yeah. And I go, so he, you can get a whole version from his side. And he goes, I love it. He goes, after the new year, I'm going to hook you up with my team from 7 Buck. Well, Frankie over there. And he goes, and uh, we're going to start this journey. And he says, but uh, be patient because something like this, we have to tell it respectfully. We have to tell it, you know, the right way. And, you know, we just can't let anybody grab this story because they want to glamorize the violence because that's, right. that's not where you're at. That's right. We're going to do this the right way. And I said, okay, I trust you. We know we, we don't know each other like that, but I trust you. I, I always heard he was a man of his word. You told me that later in life, but you know, so then me and Frankie got together. What was it? Frankie 2018, we started the first, okay, 2018. And we started telling the story. Me, Bayless, to Frankie, you know, we were, he's, you know, putting the A-team together. And, of course, Billy Corbin, right? Cocaine Cowboys, Square Grouper, Screwballs, one right. of the best, right? The best, yeah. And uh, big Billy Corbin fan of everything he does. And now, I don't meet you yet, but I know you're, Sid's soon-to-be brother-in-law, and you marry Aaron. Sid's with her sister, Jackie, the, the notorious Angle family. I know your father-in-law, Big Mark, who comes with a dear friend of mine, right? One of the toughest guys I think we could say we know. Yes, I'm right. going to go there, man, yes. Big Mark. So you know, I'm in Pittsburgh. I'm fellowshipping and hanging out with Big Mark and everything like that. You're in town, and they bring you to Jim Mannion's bodybuilding show. I get to meet you because I'm a big fan. You know, of all the things I loved what you did, my favorite movie, Shot Caller. <laughs> Love that movie, right? Of course, the joint, the penitentiary, right? You know, and uh, my favorite one, right? So then you come, come to the bodybuilding show. I get you guys in, we're sitting VIP, you're sitting next to me. And I remember how amazed you were with the size of the dudes. You're like, Mel, look at the sizes of these guys, right? Yeah. Like you were really like, wow, man. Yeah. I think that was the first time you were ever like, I mean, that close to a yeah. stage. And, <clears throat> and we started talking and you're like, hey, congratulations on this, on this thing that, that DJ's doing for you. And you go, you're in good hands, man. He's a solid brother. He's a man of his word. And you are in the best hands. And I go, John, thank you, man. It means the, uh, the world coming from you, you know. And uh, me and you were just talking about that, right? No idea of anything, right? So we take a picture together. You leave. Six, seven, eight months later, you know, under a year or whatever the time would be. wasn't long. <clears throat> DJ calls me up and he says, hey, he goes, I, I, I got to run something by you. I got this idea. And he said, uh, but I, I want you to be comfortable with it. He always says that, you know, I want you to be comfortable with it, you know. And he goes, I got the perfect dude to play you in the scripted series. I said, okay. And I'm with little Mel in, the, in, the, in, in, our, in, our, in our truck, you know, where I got him on speaker. And, uh, and he goes, okay. He goes, man, this guy's a good brother. 
He goes, he's super intelligent. He can get in there and help produce and help run everything. His mind is amazing. He's going into this, this his spiel. He goes, he can play the old you where you get gritty. He goes, he can play that that young you. And he goes, and he can play where you're at now. This dude is is the guy that I want, but I want you to be comfortable. So <laughs> it was like a five-minute thing, right, as he's going through with this, right? And I said, okay, who? And he goes, I did a movie with him. Now, he doesn't even tell me your name. He goes, I did a movie with him. And he goes, and, uh, and uh, his name's John Bernthal. And I go, <laughs> I look at little Mel and I start laughing. And he goes, are you okay with that? And I said, I'm going to blow your mind. I said, I know you don't see a lot of social media being the, the, the I call him the busiest guy in the world, right? <clears throat> you didn't see a, pist- a picture I posted about six, eight, nine months ago, whenever it was with, with John, did you? He goes, no. So you know him? I said, yeah. And here's how I know him. You know, I'm partners in the hormone replacement company, Core Medical. And he goes, yeah. I said, my partner, Sid and John <clears throat> are soon to be brother-in-laws. He goes, wow. And I go, I'm going to blow your mind again. Your boy, Kurt Angle, because they're, they, you know, I know DJ loves Kurt. I go, John married his niece, Aaron, and Sid's about ready to marry his other niece, the sister, Jackie. And he goes, wow, bro. He goes, you should have stopped me five minutes ago. We started yeah, laughing. And I, yeah. he goes, look at how that is. I go, it can't be more organic than that. Yeah, man. Right? Nobody, you didn't even know this. He's picking you for the love. You know, you know how to tell you what DJ thinks of you. And what you, I know what you think of DJ That's and everything true. like that. And here we are, and here's the story now. And uh, so I, I said, okay. And he goes, you, you know, I said, he goes, you want to reach out to John? And then we talked to Frankie. We got Frankie on the phone. And I said, I'd love to reach out to John. And he goes, but we're going to do it the professional way too, through your agent and everything like that. So I called Sid because I didn't have your number even then. You know, we met and we, yeah. we, we, we bonded and, you know, and you went your way and I went my way. And I called Sid and I go, hey, man, here's the deal. I said, I, we just got this call. And he goes, all right, I'm going to call John. I go, but you got it. They want to do it from the team respectfully, too, you know. So then you knew, but then you got the call, and you were all in, right, bro, and jumped in. And, and, uh, and, you know, then we started the journey. So it was just so, so cool how organically, and I say the hand of God, how he has everything in the plan. Because, listen, Mel Chansey that grew up the way I grew up and, you know, running the club stuff, I'm not putting Dwayne Johnson, Billy Corbin, John Bernthal, because I've um, got some mystical powers, right? That's, I say, the, the way things are supposed to be, the hand of God, and here we are, you know? And, and it, the journey has been amazing because what's it? It's got to be every bit of two, three years, Frankie, right? That, that John has been part of this, right? Every bit of, you know, I think it was only a little bit after a year when this happened. So you've been on a while, like, with your hands involved in it, and, you know, even though it's not there yet, but we, you're a big part of everything we're uh, doing. It, it, but, but, you know, it's, it's from the beginning, you felt it, you felt, you know, I think it always comes down to, to, to it, it, intention, you know, it comes to what are you, what are you really trying to do? Why are you trying to tell these stories? Why are you trying to have these conversations, you know? And, uh-huh. and, and, uh, I, there, there's nobody in this business that, uh, I, I believe in as much integrity wise as, as, as Dwayne, you know, it's yeah. not just his work ethic or it's just, the, you know, his, his, his talent and his personality and, and, and what he's about and what he puts out there in the world is uh, That's is, what is I'm into now, the journey of it that we're all doing. I we're all spending the time together, and here we are, and I'm out with you doing the podcast, and uh, we got some familiar faces back yeah, here. We and, do, uh, man. Yeah, it's, we uh, do. Yeah. It's, it's been a long time, man. I haven't been in California since 97, you know, so things have really changed out here for me, and, you know, and I don't think of California as the old days. You know, yeah, the only reason I came out here in the 90s was to see the fellas see George, and do what right? I was doing. Yeah. But um, 
And then that stopped, and I don't come out here. I, we have bodybuilding shows out here, and I run all that. But, you know, they got their own chairman out here, and it's it's pretty good. So I, I always stay east and midwest and all that stuff like that. We got guys taking care of it out here. Everything brings up memories to me. I, bet, I think of I bet, everything, yeah. you know. And and, 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 and and you know, man, the, the, the one common thing is, like, you know, when you were talking about the things, and, it, and, and it's funny because, you know, now, now George is here, and, yeah. and, and Lou's here, and you and, asked and, me about a guy that who, who I looked up to, and and, that's and, the, and, I, and I said there was multiple people I yeah, looked up to, right? Yeah, Not just yeah. one. I was young, yeah, you know. And George's son, when he was alive, God rest his soul, I, I, I was friends with him. I was young; he was younger than me, and uh, but I looked up to them guys. There was very good leader figures in that club that were, you know, from a lot of different spots that I looked up to, you know, being that young guy, I didn't, I, there wasn't a playbook. Like I always say, they didn't That's give right. me a playbook and this is how you got to be. You're, you're looking up to people that have been around a long time. Right. And I was that guy in the room watching everybody doing their things and learning from them. I wanted to learn just like when I got in the bodybuilding, just like what you and acting, you put everything to learn that dude, That's right. everything. And I was putting everything to watch how these guys were successful in running it. You can't go do this through life because somebody's going to, answer the call right? right so you have to be diplomatic you have to be that good guy that's in charge i don't like to say leader but that good person that's in charge that knows how to handle everything and i had multiple people that i looked up to and and, and george being one of them you know so you know and i haven't seen him in so many so many years because you know as i got out of the club and you know george was still in the club you know i, I quit the club in 2004 and then you know he was still on his journey with it and then you know he's out and you know it's like it's like this. When you leave, you know, even if you leave in in, in good, uh, uh, people don't like that, right? Some people just they're going to stay what they're doing. But I'm always the type of guy like if I can't give a hundred percent, I'm not going to stay there. It's just not for me no more. I know when it's time to cut and run, you know, and and it just wasn't there for me no more, you know. Um, so you, you don't really talk to the old guys anymore, you know. And then you know things change and they get mad at you and. You're out bad, and you know how how it goes, right? You've heard the stories, so you know you don't get to see anybody. But I was able to follow him, George, on social media and see, and you know, and people, a lot of people ask me because they know I was around in them days, you know. And I always say, like George was the real deal. He was a man of his word. You didn't get no no bullshit with George. He treated everybody with respect and the same from the club to not the club. He dealt with a lot of things with us. With, with the outlaw stuff too. And I remember a time, I'm going to say a time because George just remembered coming up here. He remember, uh, struck my memory. When we sat down with the outlaws and we talked about this already on that peace deal. And I said, there was, you know, five, six guys from each side. We came to San Francisco. Okay. And they came to, to, to California to sit down because they knew they had everybody's word that this was a, a peace time. Let's sit down and talk and put the differences aside. So I came in the room in, the, in San Francisco, and George was there, me, George, and five, six other guys. I don't know exactly who. But I sat in a chair at the end of the table, and the outlaw leadership wasn't there yet. They were coming. And walking into one of our clubhouses, big, big move for them. You know, you never know. It's, you know, it takes a lot of guts to do that, you for know. Sure. Unarmed, and we're all, you know, we're all, they're taking our word. And one of the, one of the members that was sitting there, he goes, ah, Hey, Road, you better not sit there, man. You know, you're going you're gonna to be too intimidating when these guys sit here. And George says, leave him sit where he wants, right? Like, they're coming here, right? And we sat on the table, and we all were good. And we sat down, and we made some rules, like, let's follow these rules. Let's practice the good neighbor policy and everything. 
So he George was involved in that, you know, and that's you know right after that. This when I told you know, I went to prison shortly after that, you know, and uh, uh, but uh, you know the memories are you know. So he's one of the guys, you know, that was that 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 paved the path for us young youngsters, you know, and uh, and you know I used to like coming out to Ventura because I liked California. I used to come to San Jose a lot, and I was real tight with a guy that's passed on by the name of Steve Tawson. And, uh, um, you know, that's where they, where they get the Mr. 187. He's the original. Steve's the dude who, who, who kind of, that was his nickname, you know. And he gave me that nickname, and the tat allowed me to get the tattoo on my wrist. That came from Steve. That was like a gift from him. To, for you to become like you Mr. Could, yeah, yeah, that was his thing. That was Steve's, you know, he's the original, you know. And Steve was an amazing boxer, an amazing member and stuff, and passed away, right? So um, I used to come out here all the time, but I, I would like the Ventura crew because there was a lot of youngsters over there. I was a youngster at the time. These guys were much older than me, you know. I was 24, 25 years old and stuff. You know, a lot of the guys were 10, 12 years, 15 years older than me, been around a long time. So they had the young, young crew in Ventura, and California was great, especially back in them times because there wasn't, they didn't have that controversy going on. It was it was peaceful time. So we would I would get out of Chicago and come down here and be like, ah, it's sunny, it's great yeah, out yeah, here, yeah, chicks. Yeah. You know, everything's great. You know, so you want to get out of the turmoil. You don't want to go from one war zone to the next, right, right? right? Like I would go to New York and stuff and hang out with the guys, but they had their own skirmishes going on with different clubs. Middle of war is there with you yeah. know the pagans and all that. That's a popular one going on. Let's go west. Let's yeah. go hang out in, in sunny California for a while. You know, it was before the crazy craziness. You know, it was in between the what they did in the eighties and that like gap time. You know, so it was cool out here. So, you know, when you said come on, come on out, I said let's go. We were originally going to try to do this in Florida at yeah, first Florida, by Sid's yeah. house, yeah, yeah, yeah. and with your schedule and everything, we said let's you know, yeah man, yeah, pretty man. cool. Uh, before you know, I wanted to see if maybe. Uh, George and Lou want to sit down for a minute, but what before do, we uh, get the guys in pee break, yeah, I was gonna say okay, I'm about to you piss gotta, myself. Yeah, 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 man, let's uh, let's go. <laughs> hey, what's going on, everybody? It's John, Bam Bam the dog. Uh, first, on behalf of both of us and everybody from the Real Ones team. I just want to sincerely thank you guys for, for, for tuning in. The folks that I bring on the show, they're family to me. And uh, being able to tell their stories and bringing you into their world is something I'm, I'm just super proud of. And uh, again, grateful that you guys tune in. We've decided we want to take things just a step further. It's a Patreon community. And basically what that means is if you become a part of this community, look, I already bored Bam Bam. If you want to become a part of this community, you're going to be able to hear episodes early and all that, ad-free and all that good stuff, but there's all this behind-the-scenes footage, all this stuff that we've shot um, that really brings you into the folks that we've had on the show, really brings you into their world. Live chats with me and the folks that I bring on the show to talk about their world, talk about the issues that they're dealing with, about their triumphs and their tragedies. Just go to Patreon slash Real Ones on this website that you see right there, right on the screen, that's right in front of you. This whole idea was um, something about building bridges and, 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 and bringing people together and um, bringing folks that often don't get the mic and, and giving the mic to them. So the fact that you guys tune in means the world. Anyways, again, thank you. Uh, be good to each other out there. Rock and roll.